Hello there, little masters, and welcome to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight, Sean and I are looking forward to a more than enough speech and merriment to rival an elf party in the Woody End. And we'll step into the common room here in just a moment. But first, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who, just like Frodo, gets cranky when you ask him too many questions before breakfast, <laughs> Alan Sisto. <laughs> well, you didn't even want to leave me any breakfast, so don't blame me. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, thank you, Sean. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, Pippin, Sean, same guy. <laughs> hey, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, actually. <laughs> I do. I mean, I know I we've admitted that he's cleverer than we give him credit for, but he's still Pippin. Yeah, he's he's kind of snarky and... No, I I don't. Yeah, I, no, I can, okay, yeah, no, I see I see where you're going with that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was just <laughs> just just on that particular intro piece where you're, you know, telling me that I'm cranky before before breakfast, which is true. Snarky young whippersnapper. That's right. Kids these days, get off my lawn. Mhm. So anyway, like I was trying to say before Sean interrupted me again, we are proud to welcome several of our patrons to the old inn of Bree for some unscripted Q&A. And we have several of our patrons online with us, and we've asked them to come with some of their very best questions. Now, as always, we have no idea what they're going to ask us. So Sean and I are going to be answering questions on the fly, as best we can, in our fifth ever Questions After Nightfall episode. So I'll start once again by invoking the name of the gatekeeper in Bree, old Harry Goatleaf, whose name I've just realized sounds like one of Bart Simpson's prank calls to Moe's Tavern. Sure does. Uh, <laughs> leave that there for now. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll come up with something next it's, time. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, so, yes, it's our guest's business to ask questions, and it's our business to answer them. That's right. But we make no promises as far as accuracy is concerned. No. no uh, as with previous questions after Nightfall episodes, aside from any possible edits for nervous coughs or time spent flipping through pages as we look for an answer, we intend to present this just as it was recorded live. So everything you hear in this show will have been recorded during this session. And if you'd like to get in on the next one, go check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash prancingponypod. Mm-hmm. We'll be doing questions after nightfall episodes about every quarter, and we'll be inviting patrons at the Elrond's honorarium tier and higher to join us. That's right. It's just one of the many ways we're saying thank you to our patrons, giving them the opportunity to stump us, make us laugh, utterly humiliate us, or maybe just get to know <laughs> us a little better. <laughs> so They've earned the right. That's, that's they have. <laughs> to humiliate us. Absolutely. Without further ado, we're going to go ahead and introduce each of them. I'm going to unmute you in order. So look for you, your mic symbol to be unmuted. And when that happens, go ahead and say hi to your fellow podcast listeners. Let them know your first name and where you're joining us from tonight. Hi, this is Emily, and I am joining you from Austin, Texas. Very good. Good to have you back. Next up is James. Hi, uh, it's James Riley from uh, Gloucester, Virginia. Good to have you back, sir. Welcome back, James. And hailing from the far north, Demay. Hi, this is Demay from beautiful earthquake-free Fairbanks, Alaska. Happy to be back. <laughs> Happy to have you, as always. Thank you, Demay. And Tim. Hi there, this is Tim. I'm here in Madison, Wisconsin. Ah, good to have you with us again, Tim. And welcome, Nick. Hello, this is Nick from Atlanta, the Mordor of America. <laughs> <laughs> Hotlanta. Hotlanta. Good to have you with us, Nick. You're uh, you're joining us for the first time tonight, so we're very much looking forward to having you be a part of this. Welcome, Nick. Ed. Hey, this is Ed, and I'll take humiliation for 500, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Double jeopardy. What do you know? <laughs> double jeopardy well, for us. Well, right. It's always double jeopardy for us because yeah. there's two of us. Well, thank <laughs> you, Ed. <laughs> All right, folks. 
Welcome, everyone. Great to have you all here. Yes, absolutely. And should we go ahead and just get started with the questions? Yeah. So let's see. I see. I saw Tim's hand first. I see Tim's hand up first. All right. So why don't we go ahead and start with you, Tim? Oh, thank you. Well, I'm excited as we get closer and closer to Tom Bombadil. Um, He's one of my favorite characters in all of Legendarium. And I've long pondered who he was and what his meaning was. And I've read reams of theories and analysis online. And I I finally uh, uh, found the last time I was getting excited um, and looking online, I looked in the letter 144 and Mm -hmm. he talks about how he wrote him specifically to be an enigma and how all of us as readers tend to tend to go down that rabbit hole. And Mm -hmm. and, and he makes it such a wonderful journey. Um, But then later in the letter, he talks about um, Tom Bombadil and says, Tom, Tom Bombadil is not an important person to the narrative. I suppose he has some importance as a comment. I mean, and he goes on to talk about how his real role is in to show that there is other ways of thinking about the world than than control, whether control that's geared towards you know the right you know, or good uh, or for the bad. There are other ways of living your life you know, in trying to you know, be in peace and, and without focusing on power and control. Hmm. Um, but he also talks about how that is only uh, you know able to maintain itself as long as there's enough good in the world you know, um, to stand against evil. Mm. And he doesn't seem to make, it doesn't seem like he's making any kind of a judgment that being a pacifist is wrong or bad, but that it, it necessitates a certain amount of good that's willing to make sure that there is something worth having, you know, uh, focusing on you know, mm. you know, or, or, or enjoying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I just would really love to get your guys' um, input on your thoughts on Tom Bombadil. And, and if you can comment on that letter 144 at all I'd, um, now or down the road, I'd really appreciate it. Well, I think we could probably do it now. Uh, Sean, why don't I go ahead? I've got the text pulled up in front of me. Why don't I read the actual uh, paragraph that he's referring to? And then that way we'll have kind of a good launching off point to discuss. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So this is, like he said, it's from letter 144. This was to uh, Naomi Mitchison. Uh, And if uh, if I can scan back real quickly, this was written in 1954. Uh, She had been reading page proofs of the first two volumes and wrote to him with a number of questions. Uh, And so as it comes to Tom Bombadil, Tolkien says, Tom Bombadil is not an important person to the narrative. I suppose he has some importance as a comment. I mean, I do not really write like that. He is just an invention who first appeared in the Oxford Magazine about 1933. And he represents something that I feel important, though I would not be prepared to analyze the feeling precisely. I would not, however, have left him in if he did not have some kind of function. I might put it this way. The story is cast in terms of a good side and a bad side. Beauty against ruthless ugliness. Tyranny against kingship. Moderated freedom with consent against compulsion that has long lost any object save mere power, and so on. But both sides, in some degree, conservative or destructive, want a measure of control. But if you have, as it were, taken a a vow of poverty, renounced control, and take your delight in things for themselves without reference to yourself, watching, observing, and to some extent knowing, then the question of the rights and wrongs of power and control might become utterly meaningless to you, and the means of power quite valueless. It is a natural pacifist view, which always arises in the mind when there is a war. But the view of Rivendell seems to be that it is an excellent thing to have represented, but that there are in fact things with which it cannot cope, and upon which its existence nonetheless depends. Ultimately, only the victory of the West will allow Bombadil to continue, or even to survive. Nothing would be left for him in the world of Sauron. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there you go. Yeah. That really is a a great paragraph. Yeah. And a very, uh, a very full explanation of what Tom represents from a literary perspective, not what he is or his nature or anything like that. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. And it's something that we'll have to really dive into uh, in terms of detail and comparison uh, when we do get to that chapter. But I think it's fair to say that we can discuss that here. What do you think? How how do you want to tackle this one? Well, I think, um, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) uh, It's that's such a good paragraph that that says so much about what Tom represents to the story. And that's why that's why I say that about it. You know, it really kind of answers the question of the the literary purpose, the narrative purpose that Tom serves. Right. um, He may not be important to the narrative, but he serves a function. And and then he goes into detail about that function. So I guess that's the first thing is to say, let's not take this out of of context. When he says Tom Bombadil is not an important person, that doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. Right. It doesn't mean he's not an (laughs) important person within Middle Earth. Right. Um, and he's just not an important not person to furthering the story. To this story. I mean, it, right. we, are, we, we would believe if, if Middle Earth is a real place and it is, you know, a secondary world that we treat right. as real, then you've got yeah. to believe that there are all sorts of stories happening all the time. And oh, yeah. we just happen to read this one. Yeah. And it becomes because for a moment it's tangential to, to our story. Right. Right. You know, it, it, right. It, it intersects it briefly and then it, it's not. Right. So. And that's one of the things that makes Tolkien's world feel so real oh, is that there are these these characters that enter, sort of walk on the stage and then disappear. And that makes it feel like the world is much bigger. Yeah. Um, and they seem fully formed with, you know, all sorts of story behind them, mm-hmm. even if we don't know right. what that story may be. Yeah. And with Tom, we've got the, the the great benefit of the fact that Tom Bombadil was a character Tolkien had already created, as you mm-hmm. said, and yeah, as yeah, you yeah. read from that letter, he had actually written poems about him that had been published as early as 1933. And so this character just sort of worked his way in. He already had a backstory or some backstory in Tolkien's mind when uh, when he was introduced. And so that's why he kind of feels real because he did already exist in Tolkien's mind. He didn't just kind of, you know, invent him out of, of thin air. So I think that's one really important thing is it's it sort of Tom's presence sort of makes the world feel bigger. And um, and he's just he just doesn't happen to be important to this particular story. Um, I would say from the perspective of what Tolkien talks about in this paragraph about, um, you know, a good side and a bad side, beauty against ruthless ugliness. Mm-hmm. And, and Tom represents, you know, this person who's just sort of taken a vow of poverty, renounced. Right. Sort renounced, of renounced all power. Renounced all power, basically. Control. Sort of not yeah. taking sides, although he is still on the side of good, but he's just not. Right. He's just not entering this particular battle. I, I kind of see that the way that, um, you know, we've talked, which chapter was it? I think it was at the mm-hmm. beginning of Three is Company. It's probably episode 103 when we were talking about the idyllic landscape of the Shire that you see the hobbits yes. walk through. Yeah. And you you need to see uh, the beauty of the Shire and all these really long uh, detailed descriptions of the landscape and things like that. You have to see that uh, to contrast with um the war that you're going to see later on and to kind of understand what's, mm-hmm. you know, what they're fighting for. And I think yeah, of Tolkien, yeah. those contrasts are always so important in Tolkien. He always, he always likes to define things by contrast or illustrate things mm-hmm. by contrast. At least. Yeah. It's the light and dark thing. We've, you know, we exactly. talked about that with Dr. Flieger and, exactly. and how, yeah, exactly. The, the light yeah. and dark are always going to be that, that, that initial comparison, but then everything else falls under that in terms of a, an A and B contrast. Yeah. Right. Right, exactly. And so even in here, with, even these lines, mm-hmm. beauty, ruthless ugliness, tyranny, mm-hmm. kingship. These are these are some great phrases and I love the way he's he's characterized this he's, uh this story. They, and they are A they are A and B, aren't they? They're yeah. all 
They're totally all you know, incompatible. Thesis and antithesis, each one of yes. those. Yes, yeah. a man of antitheses, absolutely. Right. But then Tom actually represents a person who is outside of that still. So yeah. even that you know, beauty against ugliness, tyranny against kingship, um, those are opposites. But as they strive against one another, that is a battle. And Tom mm-hmm. is the opposite of that battle. Tom is the opposite of that desire to fight for power. So right, um, and so I think which he's is, sort of a which contrast is why Tolkien, to that. Exactly, mm-hmm. and that's why Tolkien draws that uh, comparison to the natural pacifist view. Yeah, yeah, uh, and like Tim said, Tolkien's not criticizing or praising a pacifist view. He's he's saying that there's some value to it. Right, the view of Rivendell is mm-hmm. that this is an excellent thing to have represented, but then we have to acknowledge its weak points. That there are things with which it cannot cope. It, it mm-hmm. can't deal with this, this large, this scope of a war. Uh, and, and yet its existence depends on the outcome of that war. Because only the uh, good guys winning will allow Bombadil the, to right. continue to exist. Yeah. Exactly. The good only guys the still need to win for, for life to go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I like the fact that he says this pacifist view always arises in the mind when there is a war. Because Boy, it, is, it? It, is, it is when the mind is surrounded by the imagery of war or the experience of war mm-hmm. that you know, one starts to think about these pacifist views, starts to think about what the world could be like if it right. was not in the midst of war. And again, we, we've got a, you know, a, couple, a pair of antitheses there. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because Tom does seem to have this little, uh, Tom exists in a, in a bubble in a way, right? I mean, he not only in his own domain, uh, but in his own almost reality. You know, he, he, that's why the ring doesn't have any influence on him. He can see Frodo when he has it on and he can put it on and nothing happens to him. Um, well, he, I mean, he disappears to Frodo, but I mean, you know, he doesn't have any, uh, right, he's not right. suckered by the ring into saying, oh, I can't give it back. Um, right. He lives in this kind of separate world and you almost have to see that Tolkien saying that this, this pacifism is not What's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say naive, maybe uninformed, not, not even uninformed. That's, that sounds insulting, but uh, unaware that, that it can't cope with those things, right? I mean, Tolkien says here that there are some things with which it cannot cope. I also think there's, a, there's something to be said for the idea that Tom doesn't even realize he can't cope with that, right? His, his viewpoint is so different, so out of the box that it doesn't even occur to him that he has to take a side. Mm. Because he just he can't his nature won't allow him to, and it's and that's okay maybe. as long as the right side wins he gets to keep existing yay <laughs> maybe but but I would say I that I, I don't know if that's naivete or if it's just just found another way to exist you know there you go. that may be a way of putting that's, it that is sort of parallel I wasn't to... trying to insult Tom or pacifists for that matter <laughs> <laughs> I, mean... <laughs> I know that I know that um, but no I mean I think it's um, you know it's a it's a naivete I guess in a sense but it's I don't know. I, I see it as just a detachment. Uh, there you go. And, that's that's deta- probably the better way to put it. And detachment can be a good thing. Yes, it can. So it can. Um, earlier, though, and I, I I hope she still has a comment. I saw Demay's hand on on this. Uh, Demay, you want to jump in real quick? Yeah, I. Um, it was something Tim said back at the beginning of this conversation that just triggered a thought in my head. I'm old. I'm really old. <laughs> so I'm coming at this from a much more prosaic perspective of just a Mm. human living life. Sure. And, you know, people float in and out of our lives all the time and make 
these huge impressions on us, even though we don't know their story, we mm-hmm. don't get to learn the end of their story or even the beginning of their story. But at that particular moment in time, they were really vital to the way we thought. And mm-hmm. when Tim started talking, I started thinking about people that I had met over the years that have really made an impression on me. And all of a sudden I got a new appreciation for Tom that Mm. he may just be an interesting person with an interesting story. And these guys were at the stage in their life, the hobbits, that's who Mm -hmm. these guys are, are, were, were at a stage in their life where they were receptive to hearing his story, even though they don't understand his future and his, or his past. Mm. And it just was enough to, trigger a moment in their lives. I'm just thinking about whenever they um, were going home and Gandalf goes off to visit Tom and leaves them behind to return on their own. And he says, um, they said, wow, I'd really like to talk to him again. And I just think, man, there's so many people that I wish I had more time to talk Mm -hmm. to that have passed in and out of my life. That's all I wanted to say. That's a beautiful That's thing to say. Fantastic to me. Thank you for that. That yeah, really I mean, is. That's a wonderful insight. Because we've all had those experiences, haven't we? You just you 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 meet somebody on a train at an airport, uh, you know, in passing, and just some, somebody can have an an impact on your life, or you're friends with them for you know a few months, a year. Yeah, I think there's. I, I really like the way you put that. That that the hobbits were receptive, and and Tom Bombadil was the person or the entity that they needed to meet. Um, yeah. at that moment, just to have a, a certain effect on them. I really like that. I agree. Uh, Emily, it looks like you want to pop in as well. And Tim, I've got your hand, so I'm going to come back to you to wrap up the question. Um, I agree. I, Deme, that's a, a beautiful idea, um, a thought. And uh, and it strikes me that that they see, meet Tom uh, before they are, before they go in, before they even get to Rivendell. And they're at a, a place where, they're at the at the cusp of this amazing um, adventure, and mm-hmm. and this is a chance for them to to have, I don't know this this kind of this meaningful discussion. This uh, something that kind of takes mm-hmm. them out for a moment of where they're going to go, which I think is. Um, I mean, I'll talk about it when I have my question, but it's just a very um, it's a it's a it's a big moment, and I think it is. Uh, in view of 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 all the import the stuff you know that comes after mm. to have something that isn't the stuff yeah. to have to show that that is also mm-hmm. a part of existence to show that there are still other other things out there that are not right. touched by this war yeah that's right that's right yeah that's great good stuff thank you Emily uh, you know I have to say there's one thing that I, I want to mention from from a just from a literary perspective, from from a story writing perspective, I know he says this is he's not an important person to the narrative, etc. Part of me wants to think that that's a little bit of downplaying on Tolkien's part that he doesn't maybe doesn't want to acknowledge just the the, the centrality that Tom plays in that early part, uh, getting them out of the barrow uh, out of the barrow downs. But I also wonder, since we found out that this letter was written uh, when she was reading the proofs to the first two volumes, I wonder if you maybe hadn't come to. Uh, the point that we learned that the blade that Mary used to uh, stab at the back of the leg of the Witch King was so important, you know, because we learned later that that's that the blade was was central to breaking that spell mm-hmm. that knit his sinews to his will. I wonder if maybe he just hadn't even come up with that yet. I don't know. I'm just I'm thinking out loud there. 
That's what this show's it's about. Possible. This episode, not the show. <laughs> but I, I wonder. I'd, I'd have to look that up. But um, that's just something that kind of crossed my mind. That's possible. I mean, there there were there would have been other ways where you know that Mary could have gotten that blade, but uh, would they have been as uh, as compelling as right? Right. Well, he got We knew he got the blade here. My question is whether maybe maybe Tolkien had not yet decided that it was so important that the blade had that power. That the blade had that power, and that maybe, maybe. he became a little. You know, this is a way of giving Tom a little more importance in the narrative was by making the blade that Mary would use, uh, you know, central to the defeat of the Witch King. I don't know. It's a thought. That's interesting. It just sometimes interesting things come to my head. Sometimes really not interesting things come to my that head. That was a very dismissive sounding. That was interesting. I didn't mean it that way. It was, no, I, I actually mean it was interesting. <laughs> well, that's interesting, Alan. I'm Let's used to on. your I'm used to your dismissive comments. Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right, Tim. How did how did uh, how did we do? Is there anything you want us to touch on, or any response well, you have before we move on to the next question? Oh, I really lo- loved your feedback, and obviously the c- comments of, of Demand Emily as well. Yeah. I was hearing when when you were speaking, I initially had been thinking in my head of like pacifist as if, you know, like you're an outside observer or a monk or, you know, or someone mm. who's just observing mm-hmm. time from a distance. That's a good that's a good parallel, and, the monk idea, that kind of isolation that kind of gets well, to what Sean was talking about. With that's that kind of what I was thinking of when I said detachment. Yeah, just sort of yeah. separating. I, yeah. However, as you were talking, I just started to think about like how vitally active he was in the story. And all of a sudden that something triggered in my head thinking you know, the one place where you see, uh, you know, this kind of situation in, in, in the war experiences he would have had would have been things like paramedics, you know, mm. uh, war correspondents, mm. wow. people that have a different way of engaging the world around them, you know, as doctors or as, as reporters and get caught up in the maelstrom of life and still make a, a you know, live out their vocation or their calling um, and are active in it, you know, um, uh, and just like a, a writer who would be crushed under uh, under 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 a fascist regime, or a doctor mm. who's you know able to freely choose his, his calling, you know, it, it would be in a whole different place. And if, you know, if if his rights were taken away, um, it seems like all of a sudden this this just bubbled into my head as as something he might have experienced. People with just a different angle on life that he would have engaged with through these great battles that I think at least informed. Is writing, you know, although not being allegory. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's a really cool observation too. The, you know, the awareness that there are people who um, are, are vitally active. I think is how you put it, Tim, and I really like that. Um, there are people who are vitally active in a war effort, even who are not, who are not fighting. Um, mm. That's that's really interesting, and and I like yeah. that idea too. That might be something we'll we'll explore too when we get to Tom. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, let's see. I'm go- I have to scroll back up to the, uh, the the text box to see who we noticed was next. I think it was James. I, I so, had uh, I had James down next. I've yep, actually got all right. uh, yeah yeah. I've got uh, James, then Demay, then Emily. Then Demay, so then James. Emily is what I've got on my list. James, I've gone ahead and unmuted you right now. So uh, fire away with whatever you have for us tonight. All righty. Um, my question is one of uh, economics, a little bit. Uh oh. So <laughs> Sean, <laughs> yeah, get out your calculator. <laughs> So uh, there's been a couple, I know, letters that went to Barlaman's bag about how much gold Bilbo actually brought back after his adventure. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, I think the last estimate was it figured out that uh, he only had about seven years worth of salary that he could mm-hmm. live on. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
The thing I was thinking about, though, is that also would depend on what kind of economy the Shire actually has. That's a very good point. Because if they if they lived in a barter economy, then money would go a lot farther or even like an egalitarian where everybody or almost socialistic in a way um, where coinage would go a lot farther if, you know, you have a service you can provide to mm-hmm. uh, um, cover your needs in a, in a way and somebody right. who might be somewhat mm-hmm. aristocratic. In Bilbo's case, if he is a landlord, you know, he wouldn't necessarily have to pay out a lot because he could just take, for example, you know, foodstuffs from the people who are growing, like right. the gaff are growing. Instead of charging them rent, he like would just that. charge them food, but then he's got his right. food and he doesn't need to use his money for food. Right. Exactly my thought. So do we know anything about what kind of economy the Shire actually had? Oh, wow. That, that is a good question, James. The text, of course, don't give us that answer, right? I mean, the closest we get is the parallel to, you know, it's a Warwickshire, Warwickshire village at the, the turn of the century, the Diamond Jubilee. Right. Um, and that's really all we were able to draw from. And that's that's how we came to the conclusion that we did in terms of, uh, well, with the help of our listeners. <laughs> uh, in one, one of whom is actually here with us right now. Oh, that's right. I, I couldn't remember. <laughs> and has raised his hand. Uh, and, and I might just kick this over to him in just a moment. But uh, I think that's probably a good idea. I'm going to go I, ahead. But I think that well, is before we do that, Alan, <laughs> yeah, I, I like where you were going with that. You know, we all we know about the Shire is that it is based on that um, that sort of turn of the century. Um, yeah. Work. Kind of Victorian. And, yeah. So, yeah. And that's why we look to things like... Um, I don't know. I don't know. We, we've talked a little bit about, you know, joked about it being Hobbits and Abbey and things like that. Um, <laughs> Ed, who um, who sent us the last uh, yeah. sort of analysis of the value yeah. of the coinage and who's here with us today. Um, I think he was kind of looking to Jane Austen and things like that. So that's the kind of stuff we can look to because yeah, certainly Tolkien the right doesn't time really period. give us any mm-hmm. details. No. And, and, and that's he does give us details about a lot of things. Right. We've talked about this and before. True, yeah. We don't understand the logistical supply chain for the troops in the, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. We don't know, you know, how much foodstuffs travel through the ports on the Anduin. We, we don't know any of the kind of detail that I think we would see if yeah. it were a modern writer tackling this. Yeah. Sadly, uh, Tolkien just funny. wasn't interested in that stuff, and some of us are <laughs> very I'm, interested I'm not, in you know, it. I, I would like to know, but at the same time, I'm almost glad it's not there because I don't want to get distracted by that uh, when I'm that. reading yeah. the story. It's different yeah, when I'm are, analyzing it when we're discussing yeah. it for the podcast. I'd love to have those details. but uh, There are some writers who you get so lost in the world building that you, there's really exactly. not much story there. There's yeah, no more story. I, I would not want to see that with Tolkien, yeah. No. The world needs to serve. In fact, I kind of had this conversation, I think, with one of our listeners earlier. We were talking about um, uh, characters and and the the nature of the characters versus the nature of the story. And I've always felt like the characters should serve the story, not the other way around. I know that that there are others who think flip-flop, that the story needs to serve the characters. But it's the same thing with the world building. I think that needs to serve the story. And Tolkien does. He's, he uses that world building to serve the story. He doesn't go overboard with it to the point that mm-hmm. the world building becomes uh, primary over the story itself. And I think that's what makes it work. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that also contributes to making it feel more real because. Oh, absolutely. When you read, uh, you read mythology. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, a fair bit about the culture that 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 work of literature sure, came sure. from, uh, but you don't usually know it from the mythological work not itself. Exactly, you may, you may not know from it the from mythology. history or archaeology or other things, mm-hmm. but um, you know, to to a certain degree, it is that that kind of mystery of approaching a mythological ro- work from you know a world you don't fully understand that I think Tolkien is trying to replicate here. Absolutely. 
Well, before we keep talking ourselves into a hole, I'm going to bring Ed in since he's kind of our resident expert on this. Ed, I'm glad you're here tonight. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, uh, I I think we do know a couple of things. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it is a you know, it, it is to a certain extent a money economy because there is money, right? I mean, they well, that's true. They pay silver coins for the mm-hmm. ponies and for the Bree, ponies. and they, he brings back yeah. uh, you know gold, and it's probably. I don't know what it says coins, but it's certainly gold in a, in a tradable form. They talk about the yeah. a little bit about the economy in the uh, Dale, Lonely Mountain, Long mm-hmm. Lake kind of thing. We also know there's one other thing that makes me think about there being an economy. There are lawyers whose sole job it is right. to define and work out who gets what and how. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, Mr. Grubbs, Chubb Chub and Burroughs, Grub, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Grubbs, Chubb and Burroughs. Yeah. I think in the um, you know in the pre-modern world. Uh, you can't do a whole lot of trade, or you can't, and you can't do a whole lot of um, manufacturing mm-hmm. without some sort of money. You know, there's right. a little bit you can do with barter, but not a lot. Um, and I think the Shire has all sorts of consumer goods at Bilbo's house, right? Mm-hmm. In Bilbo's oh, yeah. hole, they have to be manufactured. Right. By people and and that's yeah. a that's a more complicated thing and so I think you have to go with the um, yeah there's got to be some currency it's not the involved. simplest right. kind of bartering for for basic needs kind of right thing. which would be yeah. you know which would be very very and just you know in all my reading of fiction I've only, I only have met one author who had wrote a series with sort of economics um, as an integral part of the series it's, mm. it's actually quite good and I would wax eloquent but I won't. Um, I, I think I just think that the authors tend not to care so much about, you know, how the food is grown and where the shop makers make it and, you mm-hmm. know, make their things and how that how trade goes on. Trade is just not a, a part of it. And I don't think Tolkien no. cared that much about it. <laughs> You're probably right. Um, yeah. But it's definitely it's definitely a money economy. And, and I, oh, yeah. I do think, you know, Bilbo doesn't work. And there's no, there's no indication of a, a extensive banking system, so of, that he would be no. investing money. So it's got right. to be his, his income to be wealthy has to be rents from land and land yeah. titles, and you know the hobbits. And that would makes love sense given that. the time period, right? Yeah, you know, you, we talk about that turn of the century Warwickshire village. So you're talking about, you know, when somebody when you when somebody then says they have. 500 pounds a year, they're talking about income that they have every yeah, year right. that comes mm-hmm. from their properties, uh, right. from from whatever they own uh, that's generating that revenue. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Definitely. One other sign, by the way, of a money economy, I remembered there was a quote about a penny and I couldn't remember exactly where it was. Uh, and it had to do with the gifts that he'd given out all these gifts. And at the end, there was no sign nor mention of money or jewelry, not a penny piece or a glass bead was given away. So right. once again, we have a mention of go. a very specific currency. Uh, so definitely a money world, not a barter world. Now I, uh, I will though, I will yeah. speculate one thing is I, I yeah. do not believe that uh, the hobbits mint their own coins. I think they use the no. coins that have been minted either by the dwarves yes. or mm-hmm. or it, it uh, have been probably by the Dunedain, the North yeah, Kingdom, probably. yeah, or yeah, the North yeah. Kingdom. That's that's For what I'm thinking is they're old. Well, and you and you you saw that a lot in the early Middle Ages too. People of Europe using you know old Roman coins and things like that. There are mm-hmm. Roman coins in, that have been found in Japan, so that gives yeah. you an idea of that kind of um, trade routes wow. that went on in mm-hmm. the past. And and 
the dwarves provide that kind of trading community in that they do. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. That's all I had to say. Well, very good, Ed. Thank you. That was some really good insight and I'm, I'm glad you were here to provide it. Thank you. (laughs) Well, James, before we move on, is there any follow-up to that or is there anything you wanted to say uh, to, to close that question out? Uh, no, that that pretty much covered everything. I will say I'm reluctant to entirely agree, um, okay. simply because uh, lots of places, especially in the Middle Ages, had coinage, but mm-hmm. it wasn't their primary method of barter and exchange or you know currencies, so to speak. Okay. Um, they a lot of times they would use it as oh well, this is worth so much silver. However, I can I can I can agree. I'm just not sure I'm ready to yet. <laughs> I've been there. I can't tell you how many times Sean will convince me of something. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right, but I'm not I'm not gonna say that yet. Not gonna not gonna quite let go of it just yet. Not gonna commit yeah. to it. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Well, what was the I'm thinking of um genetic language transmission. Yeah, the genetic tra- transmission <laughs> that took of me language. Forever to finally come around that took to like, several right, episodes. Fine. fine. Yeah. I'm still people not are sure, still but... emailing us about that. <laughs> Sending us you know, that's the thing about, about creating evergreen content. People are going to be emailing us about that five years from now when they first yeah. come across that episode. <laughs> yeah. 15 right, years well, from now, when the yeah. podcast is you know completely done, you're going to get yeah. a, a tweet from somebody who's going to say, you know, back in 2018, you said. <laughs> and my son, who is monitoring those for me since I'll be an old man, will be like, my father is retired. <laughs> <laughs> he'll basically right. do the Christopher Tolkien thing. He'll be there. You go. He'll be managing all your old podcasts. <laughs> oh goodness! Uh, the the idea of having a literary executor is uh, that's the word. Probably I was a little over the top. <laughs> oh goodness! Well, let's see. Demay, I believe you are next. I'm going to go ahead and unmute you. Demay, what do you have for us tonight? Well, it's a fairly simple question. Um, to I'm I'm keeping pace with your podcast on rereading the books. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing the Corey Olson paragraph of the day. Paragraph um, of the day. So uh, I, I but well, I actually enjoy that quite a bit. But at oh, the yeah. same time, I like this pace. It's uh, it it's good for me. Um, yeah. Now. I was reading the section about Gandalf telling Frodo, you need a known de plume, although he's not writing, an alias, as it were. And he says, use the name Underhill. Why? What is that about? Underhill. Is that because he lives under the hill at Bag Inn? Is it something else? I think it's a pretty Hmm. straightforward question. It does seem pretty straightforward. Um, yeah, I, uh, seriously, I was just reading that and I said, why Underhill? So that's my question for you guys. Okay. Well, uh, (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and put you back on mute while we think about it. I think I already have an idea. What about you, Sean? Um, you go first. Cause I've got, I've got a little idea, but I don't think it's a good one. I'm trying to go, I'll have to take a look at, um, there we go. Here we go. Thinking about the Hobbit? No, I'm actually thinking going forward to chapter 10, Strider. Okay. I think the reason that Gandalf tells Frodo to go under that name is that he's already told Aragorn what name Frodo will be going under. We get this. Um, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Butterbur and probably Aragorn as well, uh, because Butterbur says this. Oh, you know best, said the landlord knowingly. I won't give you away, but I was told that this Baggins would be going by the name of Underhill. And I was given a description that fits you well enough, if I may say so. Uh, and I suspect he might have also told Aragorn, but I can't confirm that. Ah, Yes. 
Yes. Uh, no, it's the letter again. It's Mr. Butterbur again. He says, leaving the letter aside, I promised Gandalf no less. Barley, he says to me, this friend of mine from the Shire, he may be coming out this way before long, him and another. He'll be calling himself Underhill. Well, now I just realized that must have been after he told him. Hmm. Well, and, and okay. even if it even if it wasn't, even if Gandalf had already decided to tell Frodo to call himself that, it still doesn't. Then comes the question, the question of why. why. Right. Yeah, no, I know. I was going to tackle he... that one next. I was just trying to come up with okay. a practical reason. <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was. I, I got to give us a starting point, right? We got to start from somewhere. Well, well, I was uh, thinking that he told Strider that as well, but I'm not certain. Uh, I, I'm trying to find out that because so far it's it's a lot of butterbur. Uh, but yes, well, while you're while you're looking for that, I will point out that in The Hobbit, uh, Underhill, the term the term Underhill once mm-hmm. as a single word and twice hyphenated uh, is used three times. Um, right. So uh, Bilbo is called Mr. Baggins of Bag End Underhill. Um, yes. Bag End yes. is called Bag End Underhill. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at the end, when Bilbo comes home, when they're, you know, they're, when it's the auction of all his worldly possessions, um, the name used in the official documents is Bilbo Baggins Esquire of Bag End Underhill Hobbiton. So Underhill, yeah. Underhill seems to be a, a key part of his address, um, which to me, it, it, it seems like a very bad choice for an incognito. Well, yeah, if you're trying to improve handle. privacy, you should just go by like Proudfoot. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know? As opposed to... Something that points to, you know, the name of your house or the location of your house. Yeah, it's yeah, that it's is a, a very strange thing. It's almost it's almost as if I were to go abroad and call myself, you know, Mr. Austin or something like yeah. that, you know. But I don't even, want anybody to know where I'm from. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. It, it is kind of a strange thing. Um, so I get that there's significance to it because it's a it's a direct link to where he's from. But why Gandalf chooses that as opposed to something completely different like proudfoot or right i don't know something something else totally different you know that would not link it back mr brown you know something that would just be completely <laughs> yeah, sort of generic right. i don't I mean, know i guess anything other than baggins would probably be okay um except for the fact that underhill is so is got to so be close. so so it close to end. to the concept of bag end exactly yeah. yeah um but i guess if you if you went with something too generic like Brown, yeah. like I just threw out. I mean, that's not a Hobbit name. People would well, never no, believe no. that. You know, it has to be, it has to be a Hobbiton name. Yeah. And I guess maybe it has to be. Well, it just has to be a Shire name. Does Does Bilbo tell Gollum? Because remember, all of this information, all of the concerns are based on the information that Sauron has uh, after torturing Gollum and getting information. What did Gollum know? Gollum knew Bilbo, or yeah, he knew Baggins and he knew Shire. Uh, True. He didn't know anything about Bag End Underhill. He didn't know anything about Bag End. I think Gandalf needed to pick a a Hobbiton name because I think that Frodo would have sounded like. I bet you're right. That's exactly. I bet there's a dialect issue that he Mm -hmm. he must be. You know, oh, he's a he's from over in in the Hobbiton area. And people in Bree would know the difference. And we, oh yeah, right. And we know that there were, um, you know, there were some of Sauron's guys in Bree, so Mm -hmm. they would have known the difference. So it couldn't be like you know a Marish name or. Uh, probably even a, a, a Buckland name. Um, yeah. It would have to be a Hobbiton name. Yeah. Interesting. But that's a, I don't know. I, that is a, that's a tough one. And maybe it would have to be, maybe it would have to be an aristocratic name too, because Frodo is going to speak mm, like an aristocrat. Yeah, he's going to speak like He couldn't a, yeah. go, he couldn't go it's by Gamgee no. or Cotton because people know that right. he doesn't he knows talk he's like not a farmer. A farmer or a, yeah, he's not maggot. Uh, by the way, I am confirming in Riddles in the Dark that he, uh, he does tell Gollum that I am Mr. Bilbo Baggins. 
Uh, but I, I'm trying to see if he says anything about the Shire. I don't think he does. But eventually, of course, he would have, Gollum would have learned that from uh, the men of Lake Town. Uh, and and the, right. so that's what Sauron would have, have learned. I, right. I don't know that I have any more than that. Uh, but, I, but I bet you're right. I, I mean, I think you've, you've touched on a number of factors. It needs to be a Hobbiton name. Uh, and it needs to be an aristocratic name. It can't be a, a you know, a, a common laborer's sort of name uh, because he simply doesn't talk mm-hmm. that way. Uh, and, yeah. and you're right. In Bree, he's so close uh, that that for sure the hobbits would know that mm-hmm. it was, you know, not an accurate name. He's close enough to home that he he could not yeah. pose as somebody from another part of the Shire. People would Though see wouldn't that. have Gandalf at least have been better off coming up with an aristocratic hobbit name that doesn't have relatives in, the, in Bree? <laughs> Right, I because know. Because that ends up being a real problem, doesn't it? That's right, because there are underhills in Bree, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, James, it looks like you've got a little comment to join in here. What do you got? Yeah, I was thinking, too, is uh, as the saying goes, the best lies have a grain of truth. Mm, so, that's true, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah if if he's yeah. sometimes known as being, you know, Mr. Baggins of Bag End Underhill, by using the name Underhill, it might be easier for him to remember it. They're right. And that's the thing. It just needs to be something easy for him to remember. Yeah. And, and yeah. Gandalf would know that. He, he knows Frodo and he, he's a silly, foolish little hobbit. And of course, he might easily forget. So yeah, yeah. pick something he might yeah, easily something remember. Something easy to remember. That makes sense. That's yeah. a valid, that's a valid uh, idea as well. That's, that is a good idea. And, and as opposed to, I'm trying to think like, what would I use in a situation like that? You know, would you go with like your mother's maiden name or something like that, that you yeah. know, would be easy for you to remember, but that most people are not going to associate with you. But then again, uh, Frodo's mother's maiden name is a very prominent name. <laughs> and yeah. so yeah. Brandy Buck. And, and that wouldn't have worked. So <laughs> that's interesting. That really that's a good is. Question. And, and leave it to Tomei to ask a simple, but incredibly <laughs> deviously difficult question. <laughs> what do you think, well, Demay? Demay, what, what do you done? think? Well, I like the answers. I especially like James' comment. That was really yeah. nice. Um, I'm I'm one of those people who's really fond of Melkor. <laughs> he was bad, <laughs> simply bad. Listen to her. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, so the, uh, the the best lies have a grain of truth idea of, to them. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, right the Melkor he, playbook. He, he, yeah. I, I think that that probably really summed it up for me that mm-hmm. Gandalf's not a dummy. You know, no. he, he knows he knows the drill here. And mm-hmm. just pulling that little bit in, it's far enough off, but not, yep. mm-hmm. you know, what somebody says something like near but not in the mark. Who says that? Faramir? Can't yes. remember. Uh, you draw near, but not, but not on the mark or something like he. Faramir realized he was getting very near the truth, and so he intentionally shot astray. He started following right. away yes. from that I, that line of questioning. Yes, yeah. Oh, that's so a good, yeah. that that um, you know James's comment with your commentary just kind of. I think that Tolkien knew exactly what he was doing there. I always assume he does, but I always wonder yeah. why he mm-hmm. did what he did. Yeah. And yeah, he yeah. was he, he he knew his words. That's a so, good that's a good thought. I'm I'm thinking of it now from the perspective of Frodo having deniability. You know, hey, if I was really a Baggins, wouldn't I call myself something other than Underhill? Yeah. You know? And yeah. uh and a that, little plausible deniability. Like, <laughs> right. Proudfoot. And that seems to me like the kind of shit. I'm Proudfoot here. Look at my feet. <laughs> and right. everybody's going like, you don't talk about like Proudfoot. Dude. I was adopted exactly. into the Proudfoot <laughs> right. line. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
to clarify that quote, by the way, I was uh, just pulling that up real quick. Thanks to eBooks. Uh, it was Faramir, as we discussed, and he's saying that clearly it, talking about Isildur's bane and he doesn't yet know what it is, he's asking him questions about it, says it is a mighty heirloom of some sort and such things do not breed peace among confederates, not if aught may be learned from ancient tales. Do I not hit near the mark? Frodo says near, but not in the gold. So there you have it. Uh, there you go. Wonderful quote. I, I, I can't wait till we get there in four years, five years. Um, we get to my favorite character then. Uh, we'll get to Eowyn a little before that, but anyway. Yep. All right. Well, let's see. After James and after Demay, we had uh, Emily. We've got Emily so, next. Yeah, Emily, fire away. What wonderfully challenging question do you have that will stir controversy on our page for the next three months? <laughs> oh, I haven't done that yet, though. I have to make that. For, oh, for a time come on, I've please. A little bit harder about the question. Uh, nah, nah. <laughs> I just do it. I'm just going to do right. a, uh, an emotionally difficult question. How's that? Um, All right. Oh, I, wow. Are I you ready listening... for this one, Sean? Uh, <laughs> sure. I was Let's I was it. listening to the beginning to you talking about uh, at the beginning of um, Three's Company, uh, yeah. talking about how. How Frodo's reflecting on the inscrutability of Gandalf. Uh, you talked about this being maybe the ring already at work. And uh, and I thought, I just kind of thought as I'm listening to this, well, maybe, but it maybe it's simpler to think that he's terrified. And and mm, he's just yeah. this is and this and I've been thinking about the book and and listening, uh, listening to it, reading it, remembering. Um, mm -hmm. you don't, I don't remember a lot of, of emotion being discussed, like, um, especially a lot of terror. And, mm. and I think about, yeah. um, what Tolkien faced going, going into war and, yeah. and mm -hmm. how very human, like at the very core terror is and yeah. fear and, um, interesting. Primal. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that. Peter Jackson was the director of the films and he comes from a horror background. Mm, and even right, so right. there's just not, there's not a lot of overt talk of fear in the book. It's, it's much more, I find it. Yeah. It's between it doesn't the lines, wrap it? you. It is between the lines. And I think that I wonder what it would be like to look at the entire work um, with that idea that underneath this, like imagine mm. anybody going yeah. through this and, and, and the kind of fear they'd have and, and, and how we had, you talked about um, the writer, the first time we see a writer uh, coming to talk yeah. to Gaffer mm -hmm. and you can only hear Gaffer's part of the, the conversation. And, you know, why would Frodo right. not go and find out what was going on? I mean, clearly this is something he should know. And there's something inside of him that knows he should be curious about it. But if you're, I mean, think about mm -hmm. when you're looking at the, at the huge shadow on the wall, you don't yeah. know what's, what's mm -hmm. really casting it and you don't want to turn the light on or the, or the worst part of, uh -huh. of being frightened is opening that door. Yeah. Right. right. You don't want to see, mm -hmm. you want to run away from it. So I, I'm just, yeah. it was fascinating to me to think of, of, of what about approaching the whole work from mm. looking at that looking at that thing that's got to be underneath everything. I mean, we're in war, horrible things are happening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah. and where is that in the writing? Why isn't in the, why isn't it in the writing or where is it hiding in the writing? And especially it's interesting mm. looking at uh, 
talking about Tom Bombadil and how that how that's a, a, a relief talking about Gandalf encouraging Frodo to go to Rivendell first. So you don't, you go to the unknown, but you don't jump right into the belly of, or the mouth of the beast. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway, right. What are your thoughts on that? that You're not ready for fear, that yet. Yeah. The fear as, as, as kind of an, an undercord in this whole thing that really maybe isn't, isn't quite so yeah. obvious because it's, it's so heroic, but in order to be, yeah, heroic, it is, need to fight. It, it, that's that more of an fear. undertone, but you're right. It's an undertone until it's until it's explicitly used as a weapon, like when we see with the Nazgul, yeah. you know, in in upcoming upcoming chapters, upcoming episodes that we've um, we've already recorded but haven't been released yet. Right, um, right. But uh, yeah, it is it is so uh, between the lines for most it, of it. It and, is for for the most part. I mean, I can think of a few other moments. I think the first moment when you mentioned Tom, uh, my my thought immediately went to the time in the Barrow when. Frodo was was chilled to the marrow and that he, oh, yeah. he had dread yeah. in his heart. He was absolutely terrified, you know, and, and who wouldn't be uh, in a barrow and seeing your, your friends on the table and here's this, you know, detached arm groping and walking on its fingers. I mean, this is flat out terrifying, mm-hmm. nightmare inducing stuff. Uh, and and I think we sense the fear a lot in that chapter, but I think part of because it it's acute be... fear of something tangible that's right there, an immediate exactly. threat. Exactly, it's immediate an, threat, an immediate terror. Whereas, you know, what Emily's alluding to here, I think, is you know just sort of the the undercurrent, the, 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 the yeah, the undercurrent of constant dread of just knowing that you're going off on this journey, you're going off to war, as it were, and you yeah. may not come back alive. In fact, you don't expect to you come don't back expect alive. to. That's right. And, you know, yeah, yeah, maybe because we we read so many fantasy novels, we we watch so many mm-hmm. heroic movies and we're so used to heroes who, you know, who step up and act heroic. Right. Um, and and so we just we don't look for that in Frodo. But maybe we but should it's there. We should. Yeah. I mean, I think one of my very first Prancing Pony ponderings was on that moment in the Barrows. And it was specifically in response to the idea of Frodo being courageous uh, mm. I think I probably couched it in the context of how, you know, how disappointed I was in um, in Jackson's portrayal of Frodo uh, as not being particularly courageous. I think of of the moment when Frodo stands the up the in the stirrups at the flight to the yeah. ford mm-hmm. and tells them to go back to Mordor. Now, it was utterly useless for him to even try that. That's when the, the, the Witch King stands up and breaks his sword with a word. I, talk about power. That's a fearful moment. And and fear, the most courageous somebody is, is not when they don't feel fear. It's when they feel fear and they still do the thing that they need to do, right? right? I mean, that's right. that's yep. what defines courage is, is there has to be fear present for somebody to be courage, courageous or brave. Uh, and I think we see that there. Uh, we'll see it at a number of points, uh, certainly in Mordor. I think of Sam uh, when he believes yeah. Frodo to be dead and he is just absolutely, you know, on the verge of despair. Uh, and then, of course, there's a lot of fear there, fear that he'll make the wrong decision, that he'll do the wrong thing. Um, but you're right. For for the most part, it is something that's consistent and should be there all mm-hmm. the time. And it only yeah. kind of pokes through every moment from moment to yeah. moment. Uh, every moment of this journey, he's feeling this fear right up until the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we and we see the moment of relief after the ring is destroyed. But yeah, uh, we do. But yeah, it's it's never it's never really articulated exactly. Um, you know, the fear that was weighing on him from the beginning. I think that's, a, mm. that's an incredible observation. It is. And it's something that we probably should need. We, we, we might need to kind of look at that uh, as we put together the episodes, kind of think, okay, what, what, would that, what would that fear look like right now? You know, yeah. what would he be 
what thing would he be most afraid of at this particular moment? Or what would he yeah. be uh, concerned about, you know, moving forward with these things? Uh, Emily put it right in the note. She says existential fear. And, and that's what we're talking about. Yes. This yes. Consistent always on mm -hmm. uh it for, for his very existence not that something's going to happen to that he's not afraid of one particular thing not that something he's, is right it, it, there's not a barrow white right now there's not an orc right. standing over him right now it's just this existential, existential fear, of, fear yeah yeah i love that Boy, that really is a good <laughs> question and i think it will probably change the way we look at future episodes a little bit uh, I, just to, i think it will sure. and i think what I think is really interesting about this question is um, over the last couple of episodes, we've gotten feedback from a few different listeners. And I think some people have said that we're not giving Frodo enough credit. You know, we'll point mm -hmm. out where mm -hmm. he's making a mistake or where he's right. being foolish, um, you know, where he, um, he acts against Gandalf's advice and things like that. Right. Um, we've got other listeners who say we're kind of giving Frodo too much credit. We're talking too much about how, how wise he is. Well, he must and, be doing something uh, right if we're getting complaints from both sides. <laughs> from That's... both sides, right. Um, and I think, and I, I, to me, I'm, I'm always thinking about just how, how wise Frodo is compared to the other hobbits, how exceptional well, of a yeah. hobbit he is. Um, but then, you know, that raises all sorts of questions about what but he does, you know, he does fail at the end of his quest and things like yeah. that. And I, I just think it's really interesting that maybe in, trying to think too highly of Frodo, maybe we are ignoring the fear that he, the very real natural human fear that he must be feeling mm -hmm. all oh, the yeah. time. Uh, and then I, I don't, I don't know that we're, I really don't feel like we're being too hard on Frodo. I know a few people no. have said it, but, but maybe at times, but uh, I don't know. It's just very interesting that, that, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing Frodo from all these different angles. And the truth is he's just such a human character and he really that's is just really neat to me. He really is. That's going to be a, uh... It's going to be interesting to see how we filter things through that that lens a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, yeah, we'll we'll see more of that. Of course, you know this. Just to be honest with you all, uh, we're actually recording this one a little bit out of order, so you'll hear this episode before you hear our episodes on on uh, shortcut, shortcut to mushrooms. mushrooms. Yeah, but those episodes have already been recorded, so uh, you'll you'll hear some, I think, in that because you know we have the encounter with the Nazgul um, mm -hmm. again, and and that's worth talking about, but. Uh, Maybe and we'll going talk about fear there, but again, it's sort of that acute fear of something that's happening right now, as opposed mm. to, you know, that gnawing. Yeah, I don't. I wonder if that existential fear is present yet. In other words, is he still, is he still sort of coming to grips with what he's got to do? And maybe that existential fear doesn't really start to raise its head until, uh, until he accepts the task after the Council of Elrond and realizes that he is going to have to be the one to cast it into the fire. Because at this point, he's not thinking that. If it's not, um, if it's not to that degree that it's at after the Council of Elrond, I think there's still that's true. Yeah. There's still a sort of an there's fear and regret. I think mm -hmm. and um, and sort of remorse at you know leaving the Shire. He oh yeah. He says a few times, "I'm he's going into exile." He yeah. doesn't think he's coming back. So he's no. there's that existential fear, if nothing else. Yeah. Well, and then there's truly an existential fear about his very existence after he gets uh, stabbed by the Witch King on uh, on Weathertop. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a fear that, that you know, he carries with him all the way to Rivendell. Yeah, so. that's a good point. Well, good stuff. Emily. Really cool I, question. I, yeah, that really is, as always, a, a good question. Do you want to have uh, any any last word on that? Um, I, I, no, I, I mean, I just, I appreciate you. That's looking. a totally valid answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe yes. I mean, yes, there's a lot, to, there's a lot to talk about, but in this moment, no. Um, I just, I'm, okay. I'm glad that, that you found it interesting too. Yeah. 
Very good stuff. Well, thank you for what we thank think you. is a, an incredibly insightful question uh, and something that will kind of rephrase the way we we look at things, re, re-evaluate a little it bit. Will, it will leave a lasting impact on oh, certainly coming will. episodes. Well, we've got uh, – we sadly, we have lost Chris. Um, I, I, he disappeared oh, and then wow. he came back and he disappeared and came back. He was obviously having some sort of connection problems. I, I feel terribly that he's gone. Uh, I, I wanted to say one thing, and I was hoping he could be here when we said it. I wanted to share with him the tremendous feedback we've received from his North Wing segment that just aired recently uh, in, in regards to the, the story that he told about his uh, uh, great aunt recording mm-hmm. the – uh, the Lord of the Rings, you know, on, on cassette tape for him to listen to. And I'm, I'm so sorry that we wouldn't be able to touch on that a little bit more, uh, perhaps, you know, during the time that we had him here, but uh, maybe we'll be able yeah. to get him on next time and, and, and talk more about that. But here's hoping, cause that was, a, that was an amazing story. And uh, I think it's my new favorite Tolkien discovery story. And it's yeah. just, it's just so great. And we've gotten such tremendous feedback from, from listening. Really to have. I know it brought tears to my eyes just hearing yeah. it. Definitely, uh, and thinking about the love that that she must have had to put together such a project for him, yeah, uh, and it just is is so moving, and we're so over glad a very long time, so if people. I recall, it was oh yeah, it was, it was years, years, wasn't it? Years, yeah, absolutely, amazing stuff. So, and Chris, we're getting some feedback from folks in the chat room talking about how yes. much they love the story too. So <laughs> absolutely, some of the folks here with us uh, who are still with us right now uh, truly yeah. loved it. So, thank you, absolutely. So, when you're listening to this, Chris, when it releases. Know that you were missed, and uh, we will look forward to having you again next time. Uh, in the meantime, we uh, still are looking for Tim, Nick, or Ed. Which one of you wants to raise your hand first with a good question? Nick, that I was see Nick. fast. All right. What do you have for us, sir? I want to start off with a, a little bit of a fun question for you. So okay. We like fun questions. I thought you might. Uh, so... <laughs> As a, a big Dungeons & Dragons player and a DM for uh, a couple campaigns now that I've run in Middle-earth. Oh, fun. I've had a ton of fun uh, exploring some of the things that Tolkien doesn't get into, you know, things like uh, yeah. what happened to the Entwives and all these questions mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. spark these long, huge debates on uh, various forums. I'm just curious <laughs> for the two of you, what is your your favorite one, the one that you really wish Tolkien would have wrote more about, and what's your pet theory? Oh, wow. Okay. That is, oh, that's an excellent question, Nick. That's going to be a lot of fun to answer. Um, And so much fun that I'm going to let Sean take it first. (laughs) Of course you would. (laughs) Um, uh, The truth is um, Tom Bombadil is the one that continues to fascinate me. I love that there is, that there's so much um, discussion and so much speculation on who or what Tom Bombadil actually is within the context of the story. Um, and we've touched on why he's in the story, but we have not, we have purposely not touched on who he may be, you know, or right. any of those things. And, yeah. and I know Tolkien's own thoughts on the matter. Tolkien said in oh, yeah. one of his letters, not 144, I don't think, which we discussed earlier. I think it was, there was another letter where he talked about, uh, you know, Tom doesn't require speculating about and he's not improved by it or something like that. Right. Um, and so Tolkien, you know, put him there as an enigma and he wanted him to stay an enigma. He really didn't want people um, coming up with pet theories about Tom. And I'm not going to share mine because if I do, it will be in, a, in an episode very soon. But um, Tom is my favorite one just because it it is such a, a big part of the Tolkien community. It's something that 
everybody yeah. wonders at, at at some point in their in their Tolkien discovery. Uh, mm-hmm. There are no answers. There will never be any answers. No. Um, and and it's good. I like that there are no answers. Um, but I love that the question is out there. That is a good one. Uh, you did not steal my thunder, thankfully. I, I kind of oh, feared good. that you might. <laughs> I wish, and I know that we've got the story now, but it's not the full, there is never going to be a full version of the fall of Gondolin. I would, I would love to have seen him write the rest of Tuor's arrival and in the rest of that story. I, I see Tuor getting to the top of the pass, I see him passing that last gate and seeing the Vale of Tumladen before him and the, the city of Gondolin right there in the middle. And I want to know more. I want to know more. And oh, yeah. that's to me the story that I would want. Again, I've, I've read The Fall of Gondolin and I know from the histories mm-hmm. of Middle Earth what you can pull and what you can, you know, yeah. put together and say this happened or that happened. But I wanted to see it the way it would have been written as a full story. Yeah. Um, I'm, I guess that's not really a mystery. I'm not sure that really answers the question, but that, that's that. And I, I was wondering, is like, oh man, yeah, because that is a really good answer, Alan. <laughs> just like, because <I> <laughs> uh, that's just like one of the one of the stories I wish he had finished. I mean, like to yeah. me, um, there's that one. There's obviously um, that guy in the boat who had all the adventures that we don't really know about. <laughs> that guy in the boat, yeah. That guy in the boat <laughs> who turned into a star, yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many like that. When you start talking about it like that, there's so many. Yeah, that's true. I I guess that's really not saying, as opposed to a mystery that is left unsolved, like the Entwives or like Tom, or I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that- The Cats of Queen Beruthiel. The Cats of Queen Beruthiel. Thanks, Ed. That was in the comments, folks. (laughs) um, And he's right. I think we would. We would want to know that. But- <laughs> Folks, I have to tell you, you know, when we when we do this, there is a little chat window underneath, and and our our, our peanut gallery here <laughs> constantly throws out comments. They're constantly making to, us laugh. They're yeah. trying to throw us off our game. I'm sure of it, yeah. but no, it's really oh, yeah. well done. Um, yeah, I guess if that's if that doesn't really count as a mystery, and that's just more of an unfinished story, then then what would be the mystery? I I'll allow that one as an answer. I think it's a good okay, answer. Okay, good, but, good. But because if, you, if not, if the you second wanna, choice would have been another. It would have been another unfinished story. It would have been the end. It would have been the um, the Dagor Dagorath. I would have, I would like to have had him actually decide what happens at the end. Uh, you know, finally, once and for all. I don't know. It's yeah. not really a mystery. It's just another man. I wish had gotten around to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah. kind of uh, about that one. My pet theory about the Dagor Dagorath is he just he decided that this was the past of our world and. Mm-hmm. You know, oh. the, the, the end. So the end of for, our world will be the Dagger yeah. Daggerath. Yeah. 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 Or, yeah. or he just, he just decided to replace it with, you know, whatever he believed about the end of the world, whether it was, you know, right. the revelation or, or whatever else. Hmm. I don't know. That's, that's my theory. Just cause there are those things in, uh, in like the author Beth where it hints at, you know, it being very specifically a pre-Christian world. There, there are hints of. Yeah. Hints, hints of, of an incarnation. You know, and Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's just, absolutely. That is. One thought. No, no, it is. It's, it's a good thought. Another, you know, another one that would be fun would be, um, here's a question I find myself asking all the time. Uh, does Elfwina have a place in the final oh. version of the story? Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, for those who have read the Book of Lost Tales and know that the original idea was that these stories of the first age were, were handed on to, uh, by the elves to this Anglo-Saxon traveler, and he brought them back to England and he founded... He founded England. Um, hmm. 
Mm. And, and then when you when you read things like the frame, the inherent frame narrative in Lord of the Rings, and you read things like the Silmarillion is Manish, it's actually Manish versions of Elvish myths. I always think yeah. somewhere in the back of his mind, did Tolkien still believe that all this stuff was, um, you know, was transmitted by Alfwina? Mm. I don't know. My goodness. There are a lot of things. That's hard to narrow that down. I'd have to say, you know, like, what are my top 10? <laughs> uh, but yeah, good question. Good question, Nick. I really appreciate that. I realized earlier that I mentioned Tim, Nick, and Ed, but I'd forgotten Tim actually let off. So Ed, I'm going to unmute you, and now you're on the spot. You, you've got to come up with a question. Yeah, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. I was going to ask about how to fight the wild werewormes in the last desert, but I think I'll put that <laughs> off for the time Maker being. hooks, Ed. You need maker hooks. Maker hooks. That's <laughs> maker exactly hooks. right. That's, that's right, yeah. So I wanted to ask you guys, I don't even remember uh, whether someone has asked this before, but I want you to tell me um, – some other author, doesn't have to be fantasy or science fiction or anything, mm -hmm. but some other author who has affected your life, perhaps not as mm. much as Tolkien, uh, because you're only doing the one podcast, but um, some, other, some other author, you know, fiction that you, uh, okay. that you find really meaningful and uh, recommend for us to, uh, to read. That's a good question, because recently we've been uh, taking part in that <laughs> 10 books challenge, right, Sean? Right. Yeah, we both uh, or did as you called it, the fifteen books challenge. We for both yours. made it fifteen books, and oh no, I did one 10. of mine just, was four books. Oh, did you do ten? Yeah, I just did ten. I was in too much of a hurry. That was um, <laughs> by the time I decided to do it, we were like four days away from the finalization of our son's adoption, and I knew oh, that right. once that hit, I was going to be done. We were, you know, my my wife was taking leave from work, and we were going to be with family, and you know, that's just a few days before Thanksgiving. So we were. I knew that if I didn't finish it by then, it was never going to get done. So I, I kept it at ten books, and I was doing two a day. <laughs> to get that through. I, I actually was trying to do three three a day before I went on vacation for Thanksgiving. That was when I came out right. to California right. uh, with the family. And uh, and we shot that live video at Disneyland that our yeah. listeners have, have yeah, watched. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was but, cool. uh, but I couldn't I couldn't get three out a day, three or four out a day because no. I just had too much going on. But yeah. uh, I did make it 15 books, my 15 favorite or 15 most influential books or something like that. And uh, one of them was The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So it was right. technically two books. So I don't know. Or, or seven <laughs> books if you want to be. <laughs> right. Well, that's a good point, too. But not four books because it's not. A that's trilogy. right. Not four books. So what would you say to Ed's question of which which one of those, which author? would be the one that you would say, you know, had the most influence? Um, it would be Frank Herbert, which is mm, funny because dude. I just made a, a, I just made a reference to him a moment ago with the maker hooks. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the Dune universe is the one that is closest uh, in my heart to Tolkien. And mm. um, I, I love, I really love the first, probably the first five books of that. Um, of the of the one of the series that Frank Herbert wrote, um, there have mm -hmm. been some that have been written by you know his his son and um, working from some notes that he left behind, but um, those just haven't done it for me as much. But the um, the original yeah. six books of the Dune Chronicles and really the first five are are truly fantastic, and and I even love the ones that most people don't love. So yeah, that's the one I think about is like the the two halves of my literary soul <laughs> are mm. are really are Tolkien and Herbert. So. Very interesting. Interesting. I, I'm not surprised to hear that. I would have, if I had to guess, I would have guessed that. I've, uh, I've very talked about Dune so much on the show. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, I, I'm sure it probably won't come as a surprise then when people hear that 
And this is a tough one, I have to say, because if we were including all the work, say fiction and nonfiction, I might might say C.S. Lewis. Um, but if we're limiting it to just fiction, then Lewis probably falls back to second place uh, or third place behind Tolkien, and Isaac Asimov would take his place as my... I thought you might say Asimov, yeah. Yeah, Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, but also his other work, Nightfall, and 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 his just foundational stuff uh, with robots and the idea of artificial intelligence. He's, he's not just an author. He is a futurist. The guy predicts the future 50, 60 years ago uh, mm -hmm. in a way that is mind-blowing. When you look and see what he got right, uh, it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, and, and to me, he's the most influential. And if I were to ever do another podcast on a piece of literature, it would be a Foundation Trilogy podcast. Uh, and it would be amazing, but we would have like 12 listeners instead of, you know, 5,000. So, <laughs> right, right. you know, it's, um, it's interesting. You start talking about Asimov's other works and I'm thinking about, about Herbert and, uh, I will admit I have not read any of Frank Herbert's work outside oh, of the Dune, Dune books. Mm, yeah. Mm. And he's, I know he's got a bunch of other things and I've got them. I've got a few paperbacks of some of his other works and I've just never read them because every time I feel like reading his work, I just want to go back to Dune. So, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's definitely not at the level of Tolkien where I just want to read every single thing he ever wrote. But uh, but yeah, he comes the closest for me. Yeah. That's a tough one because there's so many that do. I mean, I, I, I know that with your 15 books and my 10 books, there were a lot of authors on that list that were influential. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I may get more kicks out of reading Douglas Adams, but I can't say he's got a lot of influence, uh, except maybe in the way I <laughs> I try to find funny things everywhere I look. Um <laughs> <laughs> Douglas Adams had a lot of influence on me when I uh, when I was doing more fiction writing. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, if I were to write, I, I'd probably write was more kid, like Douglas Adams than, than yeah. When Asimov, I was a kid yeah. and I was writing like kind of trying to write funny science fiction and funny fantasy, it was oh, yeah. totally Douglas Adams derivative. Yeah, yeah. Or a little Terry Pratchett here and there. <laughs> yeah. I you know I I honestly haven't read much Terry Pratchett. Oh, wow. Well, you have to Yeah, I know. I'm like the the one person on earth who hasn't read Terry Pratchett. Well, certainly the one Tolkien fan who hasn't read Pratchett, probably. Probably yeah. so, yeah. Well, I read, uh, okay, I read Good Omens, which is the one that he co-authored with mm -hmm. Neil Gaiman. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that was a good question, Ed. Yeah. I really liked that. That was a fun one. Uh, and you know what's interesting about all this is we've gone through everyone except for Chris who couldn't stick around. Uh, and again, oh, we miss him. Uh, we have probably at least 15, 20 minutes. So, who has another question that they want to throw our way? And I'm seeing Nick's hand. Let me go ahead and call on you, sir. What do you have? Yeah, I'm uh, curious on what your opinion for what power held the um, army of the dead in the world. Um, I don't oh, think that Isildur, you know, he cursed them, but I don't think that he had the power to hold mm -hmm. them here. So what power was that behind yeah. that? Good question. Good question. I, um, Sean, did we, I know we touched on that real recently, but I can't remember the context. Was that in the context of I, like a... I believe we touched on that a little bit in, in a our Halloween episode. Um, oh, maybe. We, we had a Barlamin's bag question about... About the oath and about... Why did the um, curse work? Um, right. Like, you know, how is Isildur able to curse these people and and keep them here as undead when, you know, it, it it's their destiny to go beyond the circles of the world after they die? How does right. Isildur's curse have that kind of force? And I think you speculated, Alan, that yeah. Isildur's curse had nothing to do with it, that Isildur's curse was just a curse. And um, 
that and maybe it, was it had some Iluvatar himself. maybe it did something bad to them i can't remember exactly how we worded it but but yeah. i think i i thought maybe it was iluvatar himself who said well we're going to do that because we want them here for the third age when they're going to for the end of the third age when they're going to take mm-hmm. part in this battle um but then you said you had something else about maybe it was the oath that they swore that they broke, right? Yeah, I'm trying to find my answer here. I had pulled it up. Uh, I think it was in episode 100. I want to say, and while you're looking for your notes, I want to say your answer had something to do with the fact that they had sworn an oath and the oath had had likely invoked Iluvatar. That's right. Um, they had sworn an oath of, of fealty and they broke it. And so as due to breaking it, that's exactly was, right. Yeah. How, how, how did it go? It, you think about the, the oath that Feanor took and, and his sons and, and how clearly the, the last two surviving sons realized that oath binds us. We're, we're hosed if we don't, you know, we're, we're going to have the everlasting <laughs> darkness upon us if we don't do this, even if it's a very stupid thing we're doing. I think that's what happens here. We get, and it's not explicit, uh, but all oaths eventually call on Iluvatar for enforcement. He's the only one who can enforce such an oath. Uh, and and what I talked about back in that, and it was a Barnum's bag answer, and it was back in episode 100, which I think you were right, aired somewhere around Halloween. Um, I think they were stuck because Iluvatar stuck them there. That is to say, he didn't allow them to receive the gift of men because they had they had cursed themselves by betrayal. I'm trying to think of how I... Uh, talked about it a little bit more. Uh, oaths are very real in Middle Earth. You know, mm-hmm. here, you know, in, in the real the real world, so to speak, the primary world, you can take an oath, and if you break it, nothing nothing supernatural is going to happen to you necessarily. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm holding out the lightning rod on my forehead right now just for saying that. But you know, <laughs> the idea is that that in theory, you know, I mean, certainly people take oaths and break them all the time, and we don't see people becoming undead for, right, that, right. for that particular yeah. reason. But in Tolkien's world, oaths yeah. have power. Oaths have power. And I have to wonder, would they have become like like whites, maybe, like the Barrow Whites, who are men that are, you know, like undead spirits or something. We'll we'll see them very shortly. Uh, even without Isildur's curse. Uh, I think that Iluvatar gave effect to the curse because of the fact that they betrayed their oath. Mm-hmm. I still, I still feel like there's, there's an element of Iluvatar setting up the Eucatastrophe. Oh yeah, of, yeah, yeah, that too. You know, when when Aragorn or using calls upon saying, the, the "Oh dead. hey, now I have an army of undead people. I might be able to use these when it comes time to uh, deal well, that with could the be catastrophe." Yeah, that could be too. Yeah, again, because they had free will. They're men, so right. their their refusal to live up to the oath was not part of the music. It was part of their choice. Uh, and and as we know, Iluvatar can take the actions, the free will actions of others and incorporate them into his plans, right? So I don't know. Let's go back to the verse, the, the couple of lines from that prophecy that I that I read in episode 100. Okay. I'm going to read yeah, them again ahead. to answer that question. This was uh, a verse that Malbeth the seer uh, in the days of the last king of Fornost had talked about. And he said that the hour is come for the oath breakers. At the stone of Erech they shall stand again and hear there a horn in the hills ringing. Who shall the horn be? Who shall call them from the gray twilight, the forgotten people, the heir of him to whom the oath they swore? And I think the only way 
that they could be freed was not because of the curse, but was by living up to their, their promise. Once they fulfilled their promise, then Isildur, Iluvatar grants them the gift of, of men, grants mm-hmm. them the gift of death. That's interesting. So we've got an oath given to Isildur. They break their oath. Iluvatar punishes them. I I, I kind of think it's maybe kind of the same state that um, uh, Erpharazon and his men are in. <laughs> uh, you know, hanging out probably, in that cave. Probably fresher air. Fresher air yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. But that um, that would be my answer to that. I think uh, I think it was Iluvatar himself. Uh, because he's the only one who could deny that. I mean, he, the gift of men is something that is given to men by by Iluvatar. Only he could deny it. Yeah. And I think he denied it here implicitly because they broke their oath. So. Yeah, and and because we are we are not told that it is a summons. You know, we, with elves, we know that after oh, yeah, yeah. they no, die, their fey are, are summoned to Mandos, and yeah. so their spirits are bound to the world and. Uh, or to Arda, I guess I should say. Right. Um, their spirits are bound to Arda, and so when they die, their spirits leave it. But they they leave, they leave their bodies, but they stay mm-hmm. in Arda, and then they, they are summoned to Mandos, right. where they they live out their elvish afterlife, eventually being rehoused. Um, we're not told unless that you're with men. <laughs> unless you're Feanor. Um, we're not told that with men. No. Uh, no. And and so we're you know although it is, it's suggested that at least in some cases I'm thinking of Baron. Um, there is a place where men go to before they leave the circles of the world. Um, right. We don't really know for sure whether that's just Baron or whether that's all men because he's the only one we see. But still, regardless of whether there's a, a waypoint in Mandos before they leave the circles of the world, right. it Some all sort seems of clearing to be an automatic for men's souls. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not regardless a summons, whether, you're right. It, but it's an automatic process of some sort. Exactly. It's not. Exactly. It's not something that they can refuse. Um, it's not something that someone else could deny them. So if it is an automatic process. Um, yeah, you're right. I think Iluvatar would have to be the one to put the finger on the gears and mm-hmm. keep that automatic process from happening. Yeah. Um, and there are times when we see that happen, uh, besides mm-hmm. just uh, the dead men of Dunharrow, there's also, uh, there's Gorlam the Unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He seems to And in to that linger. case, that's clearly Iluvatar allowing him to, you know, yeah. essentially send that message. Yeah, yeah, to send a message. Yeah. So so there are times when that when that is done and I I think we'll never mm-hmm. really understand the mechanism why, but I think that No. Um we won't understand the mechanism, but we can probably guess who's at the wheel. Well, yeah, true that. <laughs> uh Emily, you've got some input on this one. Fire away. Oh, no, I actually had another question. Oh, okay. Well, uh then before we move on, did anybody have any feedback on this one question before we take Emily's question? All right, we're good. Emily, okay, what's your next question? I have, a not, I have a not deep question for you. Yay! Um, Yay! Yay! <laughs> I was actually, so I've recently read Roverandom, which I thought was lovely. Um, and it made me think Aww. of yeah. the Velveteen Rabbit, um, of course, like real versus oh, yeah. mm-hmm. a real animal versus a stuffed animal. I noticed that the Velveteen Rabbit came out uh, or was written before Roverandom. Um, I don't know if there's any relationship between them. I also saw that um, this this is just a side note that uh, Minnesota Opera is has commissioned a work that is based on uh, the miraculous journey of Edward Tulane, which is also really made me think of of Roverandom talking about. Um, Edward Tulane is a China rabbit given to a 10 year old girl. And you see kind of, he 
this this China rabbit goes through all sorts of adventures and um and and how you know is he real or is he not real and how the feelings he has and that also kind of fit into that I don't know I just noticing kind of this this greater um universe of of the animal that is that is a toy but is real or is real but a toy mm-hmm. and um and what would you say about kind of do you do you think that he had read um the Velveteen Rabbit do you think that was his take on it um do you know that other works that that are talking about the the uh stuffed animal versus real from about the same time period in the 1920s mm-hmm. well Sean well that's that's you've I haven't read the Velveteen Rabbit in well, it has a, been a, a very child. long time since I've read the Velveteen Rabbit. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing some um, some Google searching. I, I did confirm published. that that was first published in 1922, and Rover Random was originally told in 1925. So yeah, uh, that's accurate. Now, so it, it, it would have been fresh for a long time. It, it, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know that I've seen anywhere anything that says that Tolkien did read the Velveteen Rabbit, but I don't I don't know. I just don't know whether he did or did not. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it was a Velveteen Rabbit was a it was a British book, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. So uh it seems quite possible that he might have read it. He had I mean he had children um that probably would have been the right age to to read a yeah. story like that, obviously, because he told them Roverandum, which is a similar I mean, story. Right. I mean nineteen twenty two is only three years prior to Roverandum, so uh, appropriate for the for the younger of his children, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh I'm thinking um when we when we talk about toys coming to life uh i also think of uh my spirit animal winnie the pooh um <laughs> that's that's a story about you know a, a young boy's fantasy that his his teddy bear and all of his stuffed animals come to life that was published in the mid-1920s as well okay i wonder if it was just sort of a, a zeitgeist at the time you know yeah i don't know i don't know enough about uh, about like other children's stories or other other toy coming to life stories to to know for sure that this was a thing, but it certainly seems like th- there were a few stories of that of that type being written at the time. Oh, huh. um, I mean, we know that that Roverandum was written uh, in part to uh, amuse Michael after he lost his favorite toy. So I, I have a feeling. So Michael would have been. Let's see. If it was told in 1925, Michael was born in 1920, so he was five. Mm-hmm. His older son, John, would have been three years older, would have been eight. But Christopher hadn't been born yet. Um, okay. And Priscilla certainly had not been born yet either. So, uh, you know, written about a five-year-old losing his toy, I think that that's probably fair to say that that might have been the the impetus. I mean, Velveteen Rabbit oh. would have had to have been in his consciousness. But, you know, right. I believe him when he says that the, the, motive, the motive was, my son lost his toy, so I'm going to come up with a story about a dog that's you know like this this uh this toy um, oh certainly yeah no, there's no reason not to believe that story i think it's just a no. question of did you know was he aware of other things that were similar you know did any of those influence it at all i think the only way i would know for sure would be if i had would read both of those fairly close you know in fairly close proximity that's yeah. the only thing and and i i really haven't i can't say that that's something i'm familiar with it's been so long since i've read the velveteen rabbit probably in the neighborhood of 46 years. Uh, and, you know, it's probably been five years since I've read Roverandum, unfortunately. I just haven't had the chance to read it lately as we work our way through. It'll be something I read again as we uh, tackle some of the non-Middle Earth stories maybe in a few seasons. But 
yeah, I, I don't have an answer for that one. I, as I'm as I'm just googling, just like, hey, has anybody written anything about this? There is. I, I just found a reference to a book called. The title of this book is Toy Stories: The Toy as Hero in Literature, Comics, and Film. Oh, there you um, go. By an author named Tanya Jones. That might be one I'll pick up and read okay. someday when I when I have some time. But um, it looks like that goes a little bit into Velveteen Rabbit. It looks like it talks a little bit about Rover Random. So, uh, okay. yeah, I, it's a good question, Emily. I don't know enough about the details of the Velveteen Rabbit to know what, what real parallels there are. But there, there's got to have been a, some sort of trend of um, of just Toy Stories, you know, Toy Stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that... Woody and Buzz. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, of just, yeah, these these sort of toy coming to life stories. Maybe there's... Um, You're maybe a there's... toy, Buzz! <laughs> you are a sad, strange little man. Um, yeah, I, there there probably was something. And uh, maybe somebody ha- who's done some research on this can tell us, you know, was there sort of a zeitgeist about, you know, these toy coming to life stories? Or, uh, or were these just isolated incidents? I don't know. It's a very interesting question. I think we have time for one or two more questions. What do you think? I'm just amazed that we made it through that entire question and answer without me imitating Winnie the Pooh once. Well, we can't have that. Sean? No. Yeah, we can. We absolutely can. Oh, come on. All right. All right. Fine. <laughs> you did it in the video at, uh, that we did at think, Disneyland. Think, so. think, 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 think. <laughs> That's better than nothing. All right, Demay, you've got a follow-up for us. I emailed Sean a while back uh, about a couple of questions, and um, this one I don't think is going to make his cut, <laughs> but it has to do with Tom, Tom Bombadil. Okay. He, everybody's favorite. Yep, yep. He goes, after he rescues the hobbits from the barrow, mm-hmm. he gathers up all this in quotes, air quotes, treasure. Right. And he puts it out there and he says, it's for elves and men and creatures. Right. I don't have the exact quote. Okay. To come and feel free to take it. He doesn't mention dwarves. So my question is, is he like Ally's little brother or big brother and is really <laughs> irritated that Udavatur lets him keep all the the dwarves and I'm jealous and blah, 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 and et cetera? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> well, let's get to the actual uh, quote so we can um, see the facts. We get uh, after they, they carry out Mary Pippin and Sam. Tom goes in, and he's bearing in his arms a great load of treasure, things of gold, silver, copper, and bronze, many beads and chains and jeweled ornaments. Climb the green barrel, lay them all on the top in the sunshine. Then he says, wake now, my merry lads, wake and hear me calling. Warm now, be heart and limb. The cold stone has fallen. Dark door is standing wide. Dead hand is broken. Night under night is flown, and the gate is open. So then the hobbits wake up. Uh, they're all surprised. Mary had remembered. He'd essentially kind of placed himself in... Uh, the mind of one of these men. He says, the men of Khardum came on us at night. I love that part. And uh, the spear in my heart. And he's like, whoa, what, what's this? So then let's see, where do we get the actual disposal of the goodies? Here we oh, go. Oh, there it is. This okay. is. Free to all finders. Birds. He bade them beasts. lie there. Free to all. Yeah, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Yep. That's right. He bade them lie there. Free to all finders. Birds, beasts, elves, or men, and all kindly creatures. For so the spell of the mound should be broken and scattered, and no white ever come back to it. Okay. Huh. Well, he doesn't explicitly mention the dwarves, but he does say all finders, and he says all kindly creatures. Well, they're not creatures, so 
I think he means like all kindly animals, no, no wolves or, uh, you don't think they're creatures. Know. Isn't a creature just a created well, I, being? I think he means birds and beasts. Well, yes. In a technical sense. I, I don't think that's what he means. I think he's talking about, well, he says, Bert, you're right. I don't know. Birds, beasts, elves, or men, and all kindly creatures. I mean, I'm sure that would include that would other sentient beings. Like other sentient. I never think of people as being creatures. No, I, 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 I We are. That. We're yeah. created beings. Um, but, them lie back but we're not seeing afraid. the world through Tom Bombadil's eyes either. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, maybe all, all kindly creatures, creatures includes other sentient, other sentient yeah. Dwarves, beings hobbits, that are not ants. the, you know. Yeah, eagles. The children of Iluvatar, uh, or the original children of Iluvatar, elves and men. Yeah, but only kindly dwarves. Only kindly, so, yeah, that, I think that's important. Which might eliminate some. It would absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we know that Durin's line were better than most, right? And there were, mm-hmm. there were some lines, that, you know, some of the seven houses oh, yeah. were, uh, were kind of more wicked than others. Right, that's right. Huh. That's interesting. But I think the purpose here is... is and I may be speculating here, but I think the purpose of his um, releasing the the treasures, so to speak, is less in defining who it goes to and more in breaking the spell uh, of the mound. And yeah. I, it, I, wow. That's going to require some really interesting insight when we get to that. It is. That's a good question to me. And I, I think we will explore that in serious depth, uh, but it's fog on the Barrow Downs and that's probably... The last episode of Fog and the Barrow Downs, looking at the length of that chapter, that's either a two mm-hmm. or three episode chapter. Uh, so that'll be that'll be a while. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think there's it's definitely it's, he's doing it to break the spell and the spell must, you know, the spell must rely on the greed or possessiveness of, um, you know, of the white or of who the person that white used to be you yeah. know, in some way, because, you know, kind of making these these trinkets free for everybody. Yeah. Maybe that's what releases that spell. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that maybe be an interesting discussion because, you know, we yeah. do have a, I do have a little nugget that I found um, that we will be bringing in when talking about the Barrow White and their, and its, um, and its origination. Oh, yes. Say, yeah. Its source. Uh, and that's going to, I think, be a little bit revealing. So we'll, we'll hold off on it for now, but that episode will air, depending on how that chapter breaks down, that will air, in early to mid-April. Uh, so it's going to be a little bit of a wait. In fact, oddly enough, we're actually going to have our, our next Q&A will come out before that, our next questions after nightfall even. But uh, we'll we'll hold on to that, Demay, and we will definitely be sure to explore that at more depth when we get to that moment. So uh, that's exciting. That's going to be a really, really interesting project to research and to dig into. Very, I'm, I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Looking forward to it. Well, I think we have time for one more short, really relatively short, not super short, but short-ish question. So if anybody has one last question, please raise your hand and we'll go ahead and get to it. All right, Demet, you've got one more. What do you got for us? This is a question about your son. Oh, okay. For Alan. I know each <laughs> of you have a son and a daughter. Yeah. Uh, but this yeah. is for Alan because um, I believe he's uh, has been reading The Hobbit with you. He has. We've been reading it kind of slowly. We only read it when he gets ready for bed on time. <laughs> And I'm wondering how that is going simply because I am kind of a person who teaches The Hobbit as often as possible. Yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering how it's going with him. Sure. I'm I'm happy to answer that. Um, Just a little background for for those of you who don't know, maybe I haven't talked about it a bunch. 
we recently finalized the adoption for our son. He's been with us since he was a little over a year old. So uh, he is uh, going to be seven in February. So he's he's been with us a while and we have been reading The Hobbit, uh, though we only read it when he gets ready for bed on time. So I'd say we probably read, sadly, once every couple of weeks at this point. Um, it was an every night affair for a little while. Uh, he just couldn't keep up that pace. So, <laughs> But the good news is he remembers everything. Uh, there was a long stretch uh, beginning when school started through probably, you know, late September, probably about a month where we didn't read at all. And uh, my wife was concerned. We'd probably just have to go ahead and start over. And I was ready to do that because I thought, well, you know, it'll help him get this stuff down even better. And he said, no, I remember what's going on. So I started quizzing him a little bit. And he really did remember. He remembered a lot of detail. Uh, he remembered all the things that had happened, you know, the big moments. He remembered Gollum and the riddles. He remembered uh, the wargs, though I think, he, you know, he just called them wolves. Uh, he remembered the spiders in Mirkwood. He remembered the barrels. Uh, he didn't remember the Schrodinger's dwarves inside joke, but that's okay. <laughs> that's probably for the best. <laughs> probably for the best that my son's not that big of a geek quite yet. Uh, and then he even remembered, I said, well, okay, but what do you remember about where we are right now? Because we had just reached the doorstep. We were in on the doorstep. And uh, Bilbo had realized that that was the door. And now what? <laughs> that was exactly where we left off. And now, of course, we've gotten to, to Smaug talking and uh, to, you know, Bilbo running out with the singed hair and now uh, Smaug smashing the mountainside. And now he's off to go get Dale. So it's been going well. He listens carefully. And, it, you know, not quite seven years old, he asks really good questions. I mean, spectacularly good questions, I think, for his age, paying very close attention and asking certain questions about why uh, or having me repeat a particular paragraph or line because he wants to understand it a little bit better, asking me what words mean and things like that. So he's been enjoying it immensely. Um, I'm looking forward to being able to get into the Lord of the Rings with him, but I think there's so much more fear there and so much more so many more scary moments that i'm going to wait a few yeah. more years probably until he's yeah, closer to 10 agree. or 11 mm -hmm. uh just not not something i don't i don't want my seven or eight year old boy having nightmares about the nazgul um it's just, I, I don't want to deal with that and i don't want him to deal with that so when he's probably 10 or 11 we'll i think it's a harder time. story to understand for a child that young i think yeah you know yeah the 10 11 a simpler tale yeah 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 good stuff um he, he really has enjoyed it immensely. I can't wait to, to, you know, have it finish and to talk to him about what he, what the story meant to him. I, I really want to explore that and I'll be sure to write it down and maybe even make it part of a, an episode one day just so that we have it for, uh, for posterity. So. Well, I'm going to jump in because okay, go even, ahead. Though, even though I wasn't invited, I actually did, uh, I did recently finish reading The Hobbit to my daughter who's four. She's just turned four. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in wow, fact, she so was, much younger. Yeah. She was just at the tail end of three when we finished reading it. Wow. Um, and I did read it to my son when he was probably about four and a half, but that was a couple of years ago and I don't remember it as well. So I'll, I'll talk yeah. about my daughter's reaction because it's fresher in my mind. Mm -hmm. She's very young, um, yeah. but they know that it's really something that I care a lot about. And so they wanted, they both wanted to read it. I wasn't going to read it to her, but she no. kept on asking me to read it to her. And so I did. Um, and she had she had a she had some trouble with some of the language there were mm -hmm. some things that oh, I, yeah. obviously some words i had to define and things like that um confusticate chief among them confusticate <laughs> try to explain that know, there's others you know there's others that you know make <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah. of sense to us but wouldn't to a kid uh no and but I, I will say that um she had a lot of fun with the golem part she 
Oh yeah. I think I think the Gollum part was the first part that really I really could tell that she was paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um and maybe she liked the voice. Maybe. Um and she she liked the riddles. She picked up on the rhythm of the riddles and, and it was kind of yeah. sing songy and she liked that. Um but she knew. I mean, she was she I was asking her, you know, two days after reading her a section, I would ask her, you know, if she remembered something that happened a couple of days before, because we were reading yeah. it every night. And she did. She remembered stuff as early as the mm-hmm. riddle sequence. Um, the spider sequence, she was um, she was definitely interested. I don't think she totally <laughs> grasped it all, but she was interested. Um, yeah. And then she would, you know, she would pipe up with funny things like, what, his nose is sticking out? You know, like oh, yeah, yeah. fun stuff like that. Um, it's amazing what kids latch onto. Yeah, it? yeah, it is. And then I, by the time we got to Smaug, um, mm-hmm. she really understood what was going on by that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. and she would, you know, she would be asking me questions about things that happened before she would, mm-hmm. she would ask about what's coming next. Uh, Thorin's death was tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. We haven't was, gotten there yet. Boy, that's she was really, that, that was, that's very, very young. I think for a child to, to be exposed to, you know, a heroic character, Yeah. you know, dying in a story. And so that, that was kind of tough, but um, you know, my, my kids have experienced death, at least through pets and things like that. So it, it's mm-hmm. not alien to them. And, and that was, no. you know, she, she came to terms with it pretty quickly, but, um, yeah, she loves it. Um, my son, I don't really have as much memory of because it's been a couple of years, but, yeah. um, both my son and my daughter now. So my son is uh, almost six and my daughter is, like I said, just about four and, um, they'll, they'll quote stuff to each other. They'll, you know, they'll talk about Bilbo Baggins. They'll talk about Gollum and they'll, you know, <laughs> they'll say my precious and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. So it's, yeah, my yeah. son loves to say that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, definitely a lot of fun. It, it was really rewarding reading it to a child that young. I look forward to the next time and, uh, there will definitely be a next time probably within the next year. So, yeah. One last little anecdote. Uh, my son, we were at, we were at Disneyland and he wanted something and I said, I don't have any money. And you know what he said? What has it got in its pockets, is daddy? <laughs> like you that are kidding me. That was perfect. It was brilliant. It was like podcast perfect, you know. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's exactly who he is. He's very, very clever that way. Um, now, before we wrap up, we have one more rather unusual addition to this episode. Yeah, that's right, Alan. So, folks. As you know, we record everything in this episode live. We don't add anything later. Like, we don't go back and add answers that would make us sound really smart or anything I'm tempted. Like that. I'm tempted, but no, we don't. <laughs> After some of our ad lib answers, yeah, it is tempting to do that, but we don't. <laughs> no. It's our commitment to you. Uh, mm-hmm. But tonight, we have made an exception to that. That's right. Now, hopefully, you remember one of our recent guests to the North Wing, Chris Bartlett. Well, he joined us for tonight's episode, but before we could get to him, his connection went down and he couldn't get back in. Yeah, and and that was really disappointing for all of us because he'd also experienced some technical difficulties joining us on our previous questions after nightfall. Um, So we decided to reach out to him after this recording to see what we could do. That's right. So this little bit that we're talking about now, this was recorded after the fact, but only so that we could get Chris's question into the episode. Now, here's what he had to ask. The question I was going to ask is as follows. We're beginning to see the effects of the ring on Frodo especially in the presence of the Black Riders. This is going to be one of the major themes of Book 1. I think there's a useful discussion to be had about whether we think the ring has any independent sentience or simply acts as a focus for Sauron's power. I'd be interested to know what you think about this question. Hmm. By the way, this is one of the topics we come back to on a regular basis in Corey Olson's class. As we only have 8 to 10 years to come to a conclusion, you can see the urgency (laughs) to find an answer. 
Yeah. Thanks for all you do, and I hope my technical fail does not impose too much extra work on you. Well, I can safely say, Chris, that any extra work is a pleasure, and we're glad to have you on the show, even if it is indirectly. Absolutely agreed. But as for your question, I'm going to let Sean start out. What do you have for us? Well, it's a really good question. Uh, and, and Maybe it is something too good. That, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and it is something that I've seen come up a lot. In fact, I, I actually saw the same question come up on Facebook earlier this week. So if I sound a little bit more prepared than usual for one of these questions after nightfall bits, that's why. Only because I, you know, I have been Well, yeah, we can't lock ourselves it. in a vacuum. And, no. And, you know. <laughs> no, we're, right. we're not But if it helps, folks, we, we are recording this only just a couple of days later. And uh, we only got yeah. his email... Uh, with that question yesterday, I believe. So right. we, yeah. we haven't been researching it. We haven't been doing our typical work that we would do for Barnum's bag answer. This is no. very much like uh, this the is, kind of answer we would give yeah. on a questions after nightfall. This is mm -hmm. as close to, uh, you know, on the a spot live. As, yeah, exactly. as we can get. Yeah. But uh, it is a really good question. And, you know, I, I probably think, I, I would say, I think we probably have, uh, maybe even contributed to the idea that the ring does have sentience. We, we might have even said something like this. I can't honestly remember if we have. We've probably referred to things like maybe the ring it. having almost a will of its own. We talk about yeah. the ring has a certain kind of agency. Um, right. Things I like think agency might have been the word we used. Yeah. I hope so, because I think agency is a better word. Uh, I think so. But I mean, you know, we see things like the ring slips off of Gollum's finger. Mm -hmm. uh, the ring slips onto Frodo's finger. Uh, you know, it's uh, these. There are these times where the it ring does things. It, it does things on its own. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I I know we talked about this a little bit. I don't think we dived into it much, but we talked about it in the context of Gurthang and the mm -hmm. Troll's Purse, two other objects that we right. see in the Legendarium. That that well, Gurthang clearly has something. Uh, a will maybe not the ability to act, but some sort of will, whether it's the will of its uh, dark maker or something else. Uh, and the troll's purse, we I think we didn't we speculate that was kind of like just a really sophisticated car alarm, just sort of yeah, basically <laughs> just some sort of a, a recording, a, a quote unquote magical recording, you know, yeah, that, yeah, exactly, that shouts out something without, yeah. without really knowing, you know, without being aware, without having right. any sentience, but it's just sort yeah. of a, a an alarm. Yeah, I like that. Gorthang is an interesting case uh, yeah, because you know sure we is. do see with with Gorthang, um, it was even it was Melian who actually said. When uh, when mm -hmm. it was called Anglicel, that it the dark had, heart of the smith still resides in this, or something like that. Yeah, right? that's right. That, that, I, mean, I think that's, that's pretty exactly close. it. Yeah. yeah, the dark heart of the smith still res still resides in it, and the smith who made that was Aeol, the elf. <laughs> yeah. Nice guy, that guy. Nice guy. <laughs> dark heart indeed. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Truly a class act. Um, With a unique he... approach to dating, it must be said. Oh. If, if dating One, you call it. If dating you call it. That's right. Yeah. Let me just suggest to nobody in the world to do that. Yeah. No. No. Um, yeah, I know. Creepy beyond <laughs> creepy. Creepsville. I still don't like thinking about that too much. No, I don't either. Um, but go back it's to season one, folks, if, you're not, if, you have, if you missed our conversation on this before. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, if, if Gorthang is able to have some fragment of Aeol's will, the, the dark heart of its smith still resides in it. That tells me that there's some sort of fragment of Aeol's will in Gorthang. Yeah. Um, does that mean the sword itself is sentient? Does it have its right. own? Probably not. Um, no, it's probably Aeol. But you can, yeah, it's probably a bit of Aeol in it. And so I, I would speculate that probably what we see with the ring is probably something similar to that because mm -hmm. Sauron as a Maya is greater than Aeol, who's an elf. Oh, much, um, yeah. 
And so, and so maybe because he is a Maya, maybe the amount of his will that he is able to put into the ring is greater than what, you know, an Elvin Smith could do. Well, um, he put so much of his will that it that mm-hmm. he became fully dependent on its existence, its continued existence that's, in order to that's be. That's true. That is that is absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, Al didn't do anything near. Like, it's not like no. Al needed to have the, the, the black swords that he created in order to no. continue to, to live. No, yeah, he was perfectly happy point. to sell one as long as he could keep right. the other. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good point. I, I, I like that that call out. The one thing that I have been thinking about for the last few days that, um, again, since a similar question came up recently on Facebook, um, the reason that I would say that the ring falls short of actual sentience mm-hmm. is because even Aule could not imbue the dwarves with actual sentience. Boy, that is an excellent point. That well, really thank is. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, yeah, that's totally yeah. central right there. You you can yeah. make automatons, you can make mm-hmm. things that can respond to your commands. Right. But you can't make things that truly think on their own. Exactly. He and and they might have even been able to to speak to to speak with Aule's words, with Aule's mind. But only and if I think he commanded they did, right? Because he was already teaching them language. But Right, he was. But they're just sort of parroting him, automatons mm-hmm. as you said. And yeah. they didn't become truly sentient until Iluvatar intervened. And, and so secret fire. And yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. And so with that in mind, I, I think there's there's just no way that Sauron, who was subservient to Aule, you know, was Certainly. a Maya who was who was below Aule in the original hierarchy. Right. I just don't see any way that he could do that without Iluvatar stepping in. And no, I don't see Iluvatar obviously is not stepping in. For, no, for no, that, no. So. Not on behalf of Sauron. Uh, right. So the ring then is acting almost not, not so much in a pre-programmed way, but in a... In, I guess if we if it was an animal, we'd be talking about it like instinct. That we'd yeah, be, maybe it, so. It's it's responding because of how it is made. It's responding because of its nature. It's not responding because it's actually thinking through a process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah it that doesn't. And sense. it doesn't have self awareness. It doesn't have the no, ability to no. reason out. Uh, right. If a, it then doesn't B, have the ability to reason yeah. out fully. Okay, Gollum is not doing anything with this with me, so I am going to slip <laughs> yeah. off his finger. And, yeah. and try and get back to my master. It's not reasoning that out, but it some part of it is making that decision, but it's as a fragment of Sauron's own will that he put into yeah. it. Maybe yeah, a reflection it, of that. A, a, yeah. Yeah. A, a, I like that fragment or a, a remnant. A complex algorithm, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's you know, it, certainly not in a, a coding sort of way. Uh, right. But yeah, it, this is a, a device made by Sauron that has an incredible amount of power, certainly more power than any object would mm-hmm. have. Um, and it's going to act, but it's going to act directly in accordance with its, well, you know, lack, again, for lack of a better word, programming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the idea. I like thinking of it as as programming in a way, very simple programming, but yeah, yeah. Um, sort of an if-then kind of, uh, kind of yeah. logic to it. But it's not and making its sense. own decisions. Um, no, one could not persuade the ring to do anything other than act on behalf of its master as it always does. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it couldn't even act differently. Right. Right. And it wouldn't have the ability to do that. It's, I mean, you've got you and I both have sons of a certain age uh, and, you know, there's these introductory toys that, uh, you know, whether it's like the coder pillar or or some other oh, yeah. coding sort of device where you yeah, program you them, in, make a left turn, go straight, yeah, turn yeah. right, play a tune, mm-hmm. you know. And you, you plug those things in, you push the button, and off it goes and does its thing. Right. So it's doing something, and it's acting independently, but it's certainly by no means sentient. Right. It's responding the only way it can respond. 
It's not evaluating the situation. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's going to do what it's going to do. And I think that's the case here with the ring. Uh, agency, yes. Sentience, no. I agree. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, obviously, and we I don't have I, the definitive answer. We're we're no. just two guys with a couple of microphones. And <laughs> we're, yeah, we're just we're speculating based on what we know of the text. And you know, yeah, you look yeah. at it's somewhere greater than Gorthang, but lesser than what the dwarves ended up at with with Iluvatar's intervention. You know, right. it's it's somewhere in the middle there. And I think I think we and way it. above. Yeah, who are you? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, as we're as we're thinking about that, since you brought up the trolls, I'm also remembering yeah. there's some stuff in Morgoth's ring that we we don't talk about too much, but it's about the orcs. Remember mm. when Tolkien was playing with the idea later on of the orcs not being twisted elves, but all these other different possible origin oh, yeah, stories yeah, for yeah, the yeah, orcs. That's right. And yeah. one of them was maybe Morgoth uh, took beasts and. Uh, sort of bred them to the point where they were intelligent enough to be able to speak, but right. all they could do was just sort of parrot things that right. that their master had put into them. It sort of, and again, it was sort of like almost like recorded bits that Morgoth yeah. had given them that they could say. And that was very late in Tolkien's life. He never mm-hmm. really And it was one he abandoned. The, no, I mean, because it's, yeah, it's it, clear he ended up landing on the men, I think, is the one that he really wanted. But Is that, yeah, uh, I, I couldn't yeah, remember which order they were in. But That seems yeah. like that's where he ended up, but you know, of course, it's not where he ended up in the published version, which is why we all right. refer to it as right. know, the elves. But it was one possibility. And so obviously maybe maybe we look to something like that as an example of mm-hmm. how how something like this could happen. Maybe, yeah. again, it's something pre-recorded or some bit of Sauron's own will that makes the ring act the way it does. That makes That's sense That's my to thought me. on it. You know, I, and I'm in accordance with you on that. I think looking at those other are they sentient sort of objects – that's really the end. Well, and even people in the case of the dwarves, I, I think that's really mm-hmm. the only conclusion we can logically draw. Yep. I agree. Well, that was a good one. I, I'm, yeah. I'm glad we had a chance to to get that in. And thank you very I much, Chris, for working with us and for a great question. And mm-hmm. uh, folks, hope you like what we did with it. Yep. So now, I guess, back to the original recording as we wrap up the show. My goodness. This, this was a fun one. I mean, they're all fun. Let's be honest, right? Yeah. It, it was a lot of fun. We had some, we had a, a Good mix of deep questions and fun questions, mm-hmm. and it was it was great as always. Thank you all. Always. Definitely. Well, again, thanks, everyone, for a great discussion. Thank you for joining us for Questions After Nightfall, and we hope you can join us again for the next one. Uh, folks listening at home, we hope you will all join us again next year. That's right. We're going to be off for the last two weeks of 2018, but we will be coming back on January 6th with the first half of Book 1, Chapter 4 of The Lord of the Rings, A Shortcut to Mushrooms. In the meantime... We encourage you to go celebrate the holiday season with Tolkien and the Prancing Pony podcast by revisiting our newly retitled and evergreen PPP holiday event, The Father Christmas Letters. Now, that's the rerun that we recorded a new intro for last year, uh, and we edited it so that it will always be relevant, no matter where you are in listening to the uh, to the series on the show. You'll find that as an unnumbered episode slotted in between 63 and 64 back in season two. Now, we won't be putting that out on the RSS feed again, but we do want you to enjoy a little holiday magic from us here at the Prancing Pony Podcast, so we'll be sure to post links to the episode on all of our social media channels. Go check that out around Christmas time. Uh, if you're a dad in particular, you'll feel woefully inadequate, but it's still worthwhile. <laughs> that is why we called it Father of the Century, because there's no way that any of us will ever measure up to oh, no, no. just the, the tremendous amount of work that Tolkien put into entertaining his children in general between Rover yeah. Random and writing all the Father Christmas yeah. letters. And and for anybody fortunate enough to have attended the, uh, the Bodleian Library exhibit, you actually will have gotten to see 
some of that stuff in person, the actual envelope and, and letter, uh, one of the letters that he'd written to his kids. It was absolutely fabulous. But That's anyway. so cool. I hope to make it up to New York to, to catch that. Yes. But, uh, I was only going to say that I, I feel proud of myself if I can make my kid care about The Hobbit, let alone writing <laughs> something like The Hobbit for my kids. But. There you go. Well, as we said in the beginning of this episode, if you'd like to get in on the next Questions After Nightfall, be sure to visit patreon.com slash prancingponypod. When you join at the Gift of Gondor level or higher, you're going to get access to exclusive content like the full-length bonus episodes every quarter and short postscripts to each of our chapter-based discussions. Now we're right around the corner from our next goal of setting up a Discord server, which is going to give our patrons a chance to listen in live during recording. There's going to be plenty of opportunity to laugh at our mistakes and our bad jokes and get a sneak peek at an upcoming episode. And if you're in the market for a new Tolkien book, please check out the official library pages at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where we've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the Tolkien books we've ever mentioned on the show. And finally, if you wouldn't mind posting a review on iTunes, we'd really be grateful for that. I say this all the time, but that increases our visibility and that means more listeners, more questions mm -hmm. for Barlamin and more discussion on social media. Just all the aspects of this Tolkien community that we're trying to build here. And one of my favorite parts of that is more people to correct Sean. But uh, oh, oh, always, yes. <laughs> okay, me too, every now and then. And folks, we would really appreciate you sharing us on social media. That's uh, how we build this community, one of the ways we do it. Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, wherever you hang out and might find Tolkien fans, tell them about our show. Well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Happy holidays to you and your loved ones, and we'll see you again in 2019. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of the conversation, and it does not stop when the episode ends. You can see the comments, the questions, the corrections, and more <laughs> on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. And as always, a very special thank you to our patrons at the Cure Dance Contribution Tier, a couple of whom are with us tonight. Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, and Chad in Texas. Thank you all. Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast by subscribing to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing, as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, your most interesting easy questions, because now you know what the hard questions do to us, <laughs> uh, to Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com, and we'll try to get into our next show. Well, however long we've had, it is still far too short a time to spend amongst such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. 